rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Welcome to episode 14 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Neumeyer, and today I am joined by the host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Michael Bradley. Welcome, Michael. Hello. How's it going? All right. How are you? Uh, still digging out of the snow, but making my way around, finally. Yeah. And I, you got to dodge the snow, you lucky. Or did we you actually get some? We most of it, yeah. We got some, but it didn't, uh, didn't really affect me too much, so that's... Glad for that. Like centimeters, or did you actually get inches? Oh, no, we had probably six inches, eight oh, inches or so. You yeah. poor guy. I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> enough, enough to shovel, but not uh, really much more than that. Okay. Well, like I said, Michael's the host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. So before we get into that, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your show, even though most of the people listening to this probably know your show. <laughs> um. Well, like Charlie said, my show is The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and on that show I'm, I'm going through uh, basically all of Superman's Golden Age adventures. I, I started with the comics, and probably around the time this comes out, I will have uh, started on the newspaper strips a little bit, and eventually we're going to get into the radio show and the Fleischer cartoons and whatever else comes after that. Do really, you- in my show, I, I try to look at kind of the... Rather than just, you know, summarizing issues, I try to look at things from a historical perspective as well to, you know, kind of look at how the character evolved over the years. Yeah, I like how you do that. And you also uh, look at other stuff going on around at the time to kind of help place it in, like the, uh, what was that, the mining thing that happened right Right, about the time. the mining disaster, that was uh, issue number three, yeah. Yeah, yeah, three, that's right. I was going to say two, but I guess that was the second part of the first story, so never mind. But yeah, I thought, I, I really like that about your show, the way, the way nice. you actually do that. It's, it's really cool. It actually shows that you're putting some, uh, more effort in than just reading and talking about it. Yeah, I, I try, but it um, doesn't always work out. <laughs> With the newspaper strips, do you have access to all of them? I, well, the, the first, um, five, six years or so were collected in right. some volumes a few years ago. Right, I got those. And and if you look around, you know, on the internet, you can you can find ones after that. I haven't really looked through my files to see how many I have or if I even have enough to continue with it past the ones I've collected. But okay. Well, I that's it'll be a while before I get there. Yeah, that's still what five? You said five or six years, and that started in like thirty-nine or forty. Right. Right. Okay. It, yeah. It started in thirty-nine, January thirty-nine. Okay. So yeah, that's gonna be. Well, that'd be after the war by the time you have to worry about that. So. Right. You should have plenty. of plenty to keep you busy or plenty of time to look up look for uh <laughs> to yeah. actually look for the new for more yeah so or maybe they'll actually get around to collecting them someday i don't know that that would be cool yes it would maybe they'll put the well i guess they haven't really been doing any of that with the chronic with the superman chronicles yet no but, the chronicles just have the, the comic stories yeah but those are cool too you know oh those are awesome yeah. um, are you going to be covering like the world's finest stuff too yes once you get that far yeah okay mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Presenting Superman. The first issue is Superman number 243. It's, uh, it's got an October 1971 cover date and was released on August 12th of 1971. The cover is by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. 
and it shows Superman and a, uh, a dark-haired woman clad in a green jumpsuit, and they are embraced in a rather passionate kiss. And the text reads, Who is the mystery woman that captured Superman's heart and soul? That's some really weird te uh, font that they used on that. Too. Yeah, it's, it's not really a normal lettering, you know, like the dialogue font. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's like they used a brush. Yeah. Uh, I was just noticing now, listening to you describe it, um, I don't know, have you been following the um, post-crisis stuff, like with the um, Crisis to Crisis podcast? Yes. Okay, yes. Um, and have you seen those, the, uh, the issues of Starman and Superman that had the parasite in it? Um, back in the '89, when he was green and orange. I haven't seen the Starman issues. I've got them somewhere in the stack of unread comics, but I haven't okay. actually looked through them. But I've seen the Superman issues from around that time. Okay. Well, minus the heels, the costume he wore actually looks a lot like what you can see of hers. You're absolutely right. It it's does. It's kind of weird. I didn't even notice that. I. Well, it just dawned on me listening to you talk. I don't know if she has the boots on, or if he has the boots on, but and he doesn't look as good in the costume. But um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I just I just noticed that. That's weird. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, I really like this cover. It's I think it's eye-catching, and you know it, it provokes you to pick up the book, but yet it is something that actually happens in the book. So it's just not a a bait and switch. Oh like yeah, a lot of Silver Age covers. It's really uh. Simple too. There is no background. Right. I don't. Normally, I think that would be a, a detraction from the cover, but I don't think it. You know, here it, it really gets your eye on the. Yeah, Superman making out with someone usually uh, kind of detracts <laughs> from anything lowest. else. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, actually, you don't know that from here. Well, right. It right. could be. Of course, she usually wears pink. <laughs> <But> anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, the first story in the book is the Starry-eyed Siren of Space. And it was written by Carrie Bates with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. And our story begins trillions of miles out in deep space where we find Superman traveling back home after helping out a group of aliens in a distant star system. Superman thinks to himself that as, mu as much as he looks forward to being home again, he would gladly give up his powers if it meant there was no longer a need for Superman on Earth. Superman begins feeling an intense amount of heat when suddenly a star goes supernova and explodes. The energy from the blast dazes Superman for a second and sends him tumbling through space. When Superman regains focus, he thinks to himself that the blast must have thrown him way off course because he doesn't recognize his surroundings. He's about to take a star reading so he can get back on the right path to Earth when he suddenly finds himself irresistibly drawn to a nearby planet. As he nears the planet, he attempts to land but is compelled to drill down into the planet itself. Finally arriving in a large cavern in the core of the planet, Superman sees what looks like two small glass pyramids, one empty and the other containing a brain surrounded by gaseous clouds. The brain telepathically tells Superman that it was he who summoned him. The creature's name is Khand, and it says that he scanned Superman's mind as he drilled into the cavern and knows everything about Superman and his abilities and that he has need of Superman's special services. Khan goes on to say that his mate, Raya, once lived in the empty receptacle. He explains that he and Raya are the pinnacle of a billion-year evolution and have evolved to a state of pure intellect possessing fantastic mental powers. Not long before Superman's arrival, a spacecraft had, a spacecraft had passed by the planet. 
Raya wanted to use the physical bodies of the aliens aboard the ship as models to create actual physical forms for herself and Khan. But Khan was not receptive to the idea because he felt that having physical bodies as their ancestors did was impractical and inefficient. Physical forms die, but in their current forms, they were immortal. Raya berated Khan for being timid with no sense of adventure, and despite Khan's protests, went ahead and created a form for herself and had left to explore the planet. Khan is worried for Raya's safety, and what's more, tells Superman that if she doesn't return to, return to her receptacle, the glass pyramid, within four hours, she'll be stuck in her new body forever. Khan begs Superman for his help, and once again probes his mind, seeing all of Superman's concerns about Earth, how it's polluted by toxins and ravaged by diseases and crime and violence, etc. Superman says everything Khan saw is unfortunately true, and that it would take hundreds of Superman several lifetimes to solve all of it. Khan promises to help as a reward if Superman will bring Raya back safely, but Superman tells Khan that there's no need to bribe him, if Raya's in trouble, he'll do his best to help her because, quote, that's what being Superman is all about. On the surface, Superman scans the area and finds that it seems to be deserted, except for a few plant, plant forms. But not far away, Superman spots a woman being chased by a large skeletal creature. The woman is humanoid in appearance, with the exception of the yellow starbursts that surround her eyes. The creature looks similar to a T-Rex skeleton, but maybe a little smaller. Assuming the woman is Raya in her new form, Superman flies in, narrowly rescuing her. He gets the woman to safety and then flies back to handle the creature. Superman flies towards the creature, intending to deliver the granddaddy of all haymakers, but somehow, much to Superman's surprise, flies right through the creature and winds up trapped inside the creature's ribcage area. Superman vibrates at super speed, shattering the skeleton creature, sending bones in every direction, but the bones regroup in midair, forming into a giant skeletal bird-like creature. Dodging another attack from the shape-shifting bone creature, Superman grabs it by the tail, and after an amazing throw, hurls the creature into orbit around the planet where it can't harm anyone. Superman thinks to himself how it could be possible that a barren world could spawn such a bizarre creature, and wonders where it came from. But he can't ponder it very long, because he needs to, get to find Raya again and get her to safety. Moments later, Superman finds Raya and immediately recognizes the type of alien she has patterned herself after, an ancient legendary female known as the Starry-Eyed Siren of Space. Like the name might suggest, the Starry-Eyed Sirens possess a magical radiance which allows them to overcome even the strongest willpower. They are said to be irresistible to all men, including a Superman. Raya says Superman is the first man she has ever seen face to face, and she likes what she sees. Superman, even after only having been near for a little bit, is already feeling the effects of her siren powers. Superman asks Raya where the skeletal creature came from, but Raya admits that she doesn't know, but says that it was exciting being chased by the creature. She enjoyed the thrill and the feel of a sudden burst of adrenaline through her system, but now she, she's experiencing something else, something even more enjoyable. Her pulse rises, her skin begins to warm, Superman feels a flood of desire flowing into him, and powerless to resist Raya, the two kiss passionately. Oh, chicka wow wow. <laughs> Sorry. Back, back in the cavern, Khand also experiences this strange new emotion, jealousy. Khand has been monitoring Superman via mental surveillance, and unaware of Raya's influence over him, 
feels that Superman is trying to steal Raya away. Back on the surface, Raya senses some trouble within Superman. He's trying to resist her wiles, but is unable to break free of the influence. Raya tells Superman to break her away from the planet. She walks away from Superman for a moment to, to give a final telepathic goodbye to Kong, but gets no response. As, as the readers, we can cut back to the cavern, and we see that, that uh, Kong's receptacle is now empty. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Superman is blindsided. The strike hurls Superman several yards, and when he recovers, he sees standing before him another Superman. Enraged with jealousy, Khan formed a physical body for himself using Superman as a model, which granted him all of Superman's abilities. Though Khan's mental abilities are fading now that he is in physical form, Khan has just enough juice left that he hits Superman with a mental blast, causing the Man of Steel to keel over in agony, paralyzed. Superman watches with his telescopic vision as Khan flies off to confront Raya. Khan finds Raya and notes that she looks upset. Raya mistakes Khan for the real Superman and tells him that Khan is gone from his receptacle and that it's all her fault. She goes on to say that she really wasn't going to leave with Superman and that all that talk was just for Khan's benefit. She'd hoped it would entice Khan to man up and come after her, but instead she's now lost him forever and oh, how she wishes she was dead. Suddenly, a huge electrical creature, crackling with green energy, appears out of nowhere and attacks Raya. Raya begs for Khan, who she thinks is Superman, to protect her, sensing that, if, that she'll die if the creature touches her. Khan thinks to himself that if Raya thinks he's the real Superman, he'll do what he can to protect her because that's what the real Superman would do. Superman, still monitoring the situation with his telescopic vision, but unable to take action because of Khan's mental blast, realizes where all the weird creatures are coming from. Apparently, Raya's subconscious still possesses the mind-over-matter abilities, and when she wished she was dead, the creature manifested to fulfill that wish. And unfortunately, since Raya is the dominant member of the pair, Khan isn't powerful enough to eliminate the creature. Meanwhile, Khan, with only Superman's abilities at hand, battles the electrical creature. However, when Khan punches it, it causes the creature to split in half, creating two creatures. Khan thinks to himself how Superman would battle such a creature and attempts to bat blast of heat vision, though that only causes the creature to split again, resulting in four. Due to Khan's battle with the creatures, he begins losing his death grip on Superman, freeing the Man of Steel, and Superman concludes there's only one way to defeat the creatures. Raya must get her wish and die. Back at the fight, Khan fends off an attack from now eight electrical creatures and begins to think he has failed. But from some distance away, Superman uses his super suction to create a vacuum around Raya's head, causing her to pass out. As Raya dies from lack of oxygen, the electrical creatures vanish. Superman starts to move to resuscitate Raya, but Khan springs into action, shoving Superman out of the way and using x-rays and artificial respiration to bring Raya back to life. Raya revives and thanks to Khan, or and thanks Khan, still believing him to be Superman, with a kiss. Raya notices the kiss felt different from her earlier kiss with the real Superman, and Khan reveals his true identity and how he cannot remain in his receptacle with Raya in danger. The two share a long talk and tell Superman that they've decided to remain in their new physical bodies, sharing a deeper love than they, than they ever could in intellect form. Khan also tells Superman that Raya explained the bit about the siren spell and apologizes for trying to kill him, which pretty thoughtful. Superman starts, yeah. <laughs> Superman starts to leave to return to Earth, but Khan stops him, saying that he had made Superman a promise. 
He uses his remaining mental powers to conjure up four potions that, upon contact with Earth's atmosphere, will instantly and completely eliminate disease, pollution, crime, and starvation from the planet. As Superman travels homeward, he relishes in the idea that the potions will allow him to give up his Superman identity permanently and marry Lois as Clark Kent. But when Superman arrives to where the Earth should be, he finds nothing but empty space and notices that the star formations are all out of place. Using the stars as a guide, Superman finds where the Earth actually is, only to find the continents are different. It seems the blast of the supernova at the beginning of the issue actually threw Superman billions of years into the past. Superman uses his super speed to travel through time into 1971, wondering whatever became of Khan and Raya. And there's a footnote asking readers if they would like Superman to investigate that ancient mystery sometime. But he says at least he can still use the potions to benefit mankind. Unfortunately, Superman's hopes are dashed when he realizes the trip through the time stream has crystallized the potions, rendering them useless, and any hopes he or Earth had are gone. Superman then spots a breakout at the Metropolis Penitentiary, and with a this-looks-like-a-job-for-Superman, resumes the never-ending battle. Awesome. Yeah, I really like the story. Yeah, it was a pretty good one. It was a little... There, there were a few things that were a little weird. And yeah. Hold on a second. What? <laughs> My wife's in here laughing at me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's her. That's her job with your wife. To laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> uh, do you want to do your notes first? Or do you want me to go into mine first? Um. I think I have more uh, page by page things than you do. So. Okay. If we can just go page by page and then... Uh... All right, that sounds good. Yeah, because I actually, while you were going over it again, I actually uh, thought of a few things that I forgot to actually write down. So okay. I'll let you go ahead and I'll just kick in wherever I have something. All right. Well, my first note is, you know, right here in this first panel, we find Superman trillions of miles out in deep space, which, I mean, that, that depowering from Denny O'Neill's run it didn't last very long. <laughs> not, no, not at all. In fact... Um, I, didn't really seem to do anything other outside of the Superman book. Yeah, um, yeah. That was one of the things I was trying to note every on every issue that I've gone through is world. Even though he was writing World's Finest, he didn't put it in there, and action never seemed to care. But oh, yeah, Neil was writing the books World's he, Finest at this point too. Oh uh, yeah, he he wrote most of them. Sometimes he would um. Basically, unless it was a character that Steve Skeets wrote, and he basically at the time was like writing Aquaman and the Teen Titans, and okay. did he was also writing Robin's solo backup, and I think it was in the Batman book. So if he if it was one of those characters, he would actually come in and write the issue, but otherwise it was Denny O'Neill, and he completely ignored the whole depowering too, which I thought was kind of weird because it's Denny. And Julie Schwartz was editing, so you would think that yeah. they'd try to keep it together, but they didn't yeah. really. The the creators from this period and who was on the books when they all kind of jumbled together for me. Oh, okay. For some reason, I don't. I have a better handle on stuff after the reboot. Um, yeah, it's it's a big jumble around this time too, because once the O'Neill part ended, then the writers are jumping all over the books. Yeah, kind of like the Silver Age stuff. Yeah. As far as yeah. Yeah, it's basically whenever. They're, whenever they happen to have the story ready, they just put it in there, no matter who wrote it and which book it was. So. Oh, my next note, on page four, 
when um, Raya is berating Khan for being timid and having no sense of adventure. And it, it, maybe it's just because I'm so immersed in the Golden Age stuff lately, but it really reminded me of Lois' treatment of Clark. Oh, uh, yeah. I, you know, I was thinking about that, and I forgot to write it down. But I noticed it more when you started going over it. It totally sounds very – especially with him being timid and scared. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She wasn't quite as cold. But. <laughs> no, no, not no. Uh, page five, I, I just really like this page from Swan and Anderson. I thought the art was really nice. Uh, for those that don't have the book in front of them, the top two-thirds of the page is basically just Superman's head, and then all around him it's showing uh, different scenes from Earth of people dying and starving and fighting in wars and a you know, factory polluting the environment. I like um, Swan's got some pretty good detail too. If you look at those uh, little kids with the starvation, they've got the enlarged yeah. stomach areas. Yeah, yeah. It looks really cool, and you can really still nice. you can still tell that their faces are kind of drawn and stuff, even though it's so small. Which I right. guess is probably good for uh, Anderson's inking too. But yeah, um, Swan, that, I you know Swan's a great artist, but Anderson really complimented him. Oh yeah, this, in this period. Yeah. yeah, this it was really starting to kick in with this issue. Yeah. Oh, I've noticed that too. Yeah. Okay. Looking, really, uh, I don't want to spoil ahead, but all four ish or all the four stories that we're going to look at were done by Swan and Anderson. So, or were they? Yes. Uh, okay. They're all Swan all right. and Anderson, all written by Carrie Bates. So. Yeah. Yeah. They do everything but, this month. <laughs> yeah, I had that uh, note elsewhere that you know Swan's art was just really strong. And um, on the writing side, I really love Superman's uh, reaction here, um, both to the the problems that face Earth and the one that faces Khan, because he's not, you know, he recognizes the problems on Earth, and that he's not even being Superman, he's not likely to solve them all. But he's not just sitting there moaning about it and oh woe is me and getting all, you know, depressed he's not, about it. He's, he's not just, Peter Parker, Peter Parker yet. <laughs> Right, right. But um, and you know, Khan says I need help finding my, uh, my partner, my wife, whatever she is, and he's just like, okay, that's what Superman does, and flies off to help. You yeah, know? no problem. Yeah, no <laughs> if she's in there. trouble. You don't need to pay me. You don't need to bribe me. That's just um, that's just what I do. And I, I, I'm not one to get real emotional and and cheer when I read books, but that third panel on this page just really made me want to stand up and cheer. Oh yeah. That was really cool. Uh, my next note actually goes over three pages. <laughs> uh, page seven, we've got Superman saying, great galaxies, and then later it's moons of Krypton and great suns. <laughs> I just love these exclamations that Superman had during the Bronze Age because it was always yeah, re- different. A recent issue I did have, he actually said great galloping galaxies. Which is really weird. And and usually the only one that most people remember from this time period is uh him saying Great Krypton. Yeah. Or maybe Great Rao. But right. Moons of Krypton is isn't bad, but Great Galaxies just seemed kinda weird. Before we move on though, I did notice um she's not wearing the same costume now that she is on the cover. You're right. She's the one inside is yellow. Kind of a goldish yeah, color. It's all yellow, it doesn't have separate boots, uh right. and she's got these shoulder thingies. And a belt, and I don't think she has a belt on the cover. She does. It looks like it's part of the straps, but it's not yeah, like it's it is. Yeah, it's hard to tell. It's not the bulky kind. And I guess she could have shoulder pads, but it doesn't look like she does. Yeah, it doesn't look like it. 
you can see her shoulders there by Superman's arms, and it's right. But the only thing that got right was she has black hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I gotta love it. Yeah. See, on page ten, when they kissed, I, I just couldn't help but wonder if she was gonna forget everything that happened before that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. This was yeah. This was seventy-one, so this was years before the movie. So the memory oh, yeah. kiss hadn't been introduced yet. Well, I want to say that they probably used it in the Silver Age, but I can't honestly say that for sure. Oh, you know, I bet you they did. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to find out from Billy Hogan. But... Exactly. <laughs> yes, he'll tell us. Uh, page 13. This is another great page of art from Swan. But I don't really understand Raya's... The, the dialogue is just a little bit weird here. Which if, part? If she knew that Khan was going to be watching, then... Or no, she didn't. She didn't. She acts like she didn't know Khan was going to be watching. How is it for his benefit... If she didn't know that Cotton was going to be, you know? Yeah, that doesn't make sense now that I think about it, or now that you mention it. Because if she didn't know he was watching, then it wasn't really for him. Right. Strike one against Carrie. Yeah. Poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then on page page 14, we have Superman leaping tall logic in a single bound. (laughs) Pulling the idea out of nowhere that, you know, it's Raya that's generating these creatures and that somehow he figures out that Khan is not the dominant one, so he won't be able to defeat them. And I have no idea where that came from. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing leap of logic. Yeah. Um. It's, it's it turned out to be right, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I do notice though, if you if you uh, while the leaps in logic are pretty interesting, he is still stuck there, but Superman has completely rolled around. Yeah. And uh, well, I think that was because as. Khan's uh, abilities are fading as he, the longer he stays in Superman's form. And then once he starts fighting the creatures, they fade even faster. That's kind of what I pulled out of the dialogue. Well, yeah, I was just I just thought it was cool, though, that um, they actually have him moving. They don't, oh, I see what you're saying. Without, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. without some caption saying, meanwhile, back at the wherever, where, while Superman is struggling to move... Right. Against Khan's mental whammy or whatever, but they they just draw it in there. It's really subtle. Right. It's got good. It's good continuity, and I like the way he did. Uh, Swan did it because it totally looks like he's struggling and trying to move but can't. Page sixteen. I just found it awful convenient that these aliens on a distant planet need oxygen to survive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because totally, she could have could have been dying anyway. It's pretty actually. Makes a good point if, um, from when she actually took the alien in the first place. Right. Cause she, what well, was it in the ship, right? Right, it's just a, it's, it's a planet, you know, millions of miles out in space, and it's, um, another ship goes by carrying alien, aliens, and then she creates an artificial form based on those aliens, and somehow it needs oxygen. Yeah, so. it's kinda crazy. But Superman kills her! Yeah, I know! Kills her dead. He he means to do it just temporarily, but still, that's that's his. Still, it's breaking he his oath. Says that she had to die for the yep. creatures to vanish. So, and yeah. when they see at first, though, I started wondering, well, maybe she didn't die. Maybe she's just unconscious because of the way they have death in quotes. But then they actually mentioned in the in the panel that uh, or the caption box that her heart stopped beating. Right. So that's just wow. <laughs> Now, see, what's supposed to happen now is he's supposed to, like, give up his powers and die or something, but 
leave Earth. Yeah. Oh yeah, never. You know, not say he'll never come back, but be back in a couple months and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, page seventeen, Khan is he lies because he says he. He says he left because Raya was in danger, but he didn't leave because she was in danger. He left because he was jealous of her, you know, quote unquote relationship with Superman. I, oh, you know what? I totally missed that part. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, just, I don't know, the logic from both of those, there's, there's just some leaps of logic in, in the story, but. Yeah, not, it's, it's a fun story, but it doesn't seem to yeah. be one of Carrie's best. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. I, it was a nice done-in-one story, which we definitely don't get in uh, comics, oh. you know, today. No, this story would have been about four or five issues, maybe six to give it a nice round number. And Probably six, stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, it it kind of feels like a Silver Age story in premise, but it, it's definitely more of a Bronze Age telling of it. You know, yeah, been a lot more heavy-handed exposition and. Boxes, I, I, I think. Well, Carrie was did do some writing um, under Mort Weisinger in the Silver Age, so it's possible he was still in. I know uh, Schwartz had a lot of reverence for him, uh, for Weisinger, just because right. they were friends and stuff. Right. So I'm sure once he re- once they once he realized that you know the stuff he was trying to change on Superman wasn't going to actually work or continue, he was like, oh, well, just do what you used to do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I I don't mean to sound like I'm being down on the story. It, it is a nice, fun little story, and oh yeah, totally uh, yeah. I I feel the same way every time I do one of these episodes because it's like I nitpick and point out all the bad stuff, and then all yeah. I can say is the art looked good. <laughs> yeah, and that you know, and I feel bad, but it's like, well that, but that's what they. I like to think that's what people are kind of listening for because. It, uh, what I heard Scott Gardner say one time, it's like, if the story's really good, you just don't have anything to talk about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And even though, uh, the, uh, the way that the potions were conveniently crystallized going through the time stream, you know, I, I love the way Bates handled Superman's, um, reactions, or the way he handled, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, back so on was... page five. With the, you know, with Superman's attitudes towards the, the ills of society and helping, oh, okay. helping Hond and Raya. Just yeah. that, I just miss that, uh, that sort of, uh, attitude. Yeah. Superman. We haven't seen that in so long. Yeah, he would have just kind of sat there and cried for a little bit. And he right. did look, he did look, um, does look a little sad on that bottom, uh, what, panel two on page five? Yeah. And, you know, he, but, it, it affects him. He's not yeah. a stone. Stone emotionally, but yeah. it's not. Uh, it's not overwhelming him. And it's not yeah, becoming his whole character. He realizes he realizes it's not going to be easy, but he's going to do what he can. Right. Um, the one thing I thought though is I was kind of surprised he took those uh, potions in the first place, because uh, Superman's usually never been about the easy way out for people. Yeah. Because yeah, he's that's a good point. He's always wanted to be. Of course, now. Granted, most of that stuff that is stuff I'm probably pulling from like post crisis and stuff, but he's always wanted, he's always talking about um, how he's wanted to serve more as an inspiration, and right. this would be just like it just seemed a little too like more personal gain than anything. I mean, yeah, it was a gift because he helped them and did all the Superman stuff, but he was like, all right, cool, thanks, and he was just gonna take it to Earth and 
then he uh, the whole way back he's thinking about all how cool it'll be because then without crime he can not be superman anymore and marry lois and all that mm-hmm. stuff and it was kind of selfish of course granted he kind of gets his butt kicked for thinking it because of the whole everything turning to crystal but it just yeah just seemed a little out of character that he would do that i thought he would be more um thanks but no thanks we need to work it out ourselves or something like that yeah I also, um, since they had that note, I'm wondering if we actually get to, uh, if they actually revisit Khan and Raya. I was going to ask you that. Uh, I would kind of like to have seen them go back and do a, a backup story or something with them. I'll have to. I, I couldn't find, I did a little bit of uh, Googling on it, couldn't find anything, but I didn't me. know if maybe they appeared and you knew where that was. Or... I I honestly don't remember them ever coming back, but I'm, and of course they don't mention it on the DC database thing. But um, I am, unfortunately, once we get out of the Denny O'Neill part on Superman, I'm kind of unfamiliar with what goes on between there and about late 73. Okay. So, unfortunately, um, I'm, I have no idea either. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I keep listening to the show. Yeah. I'll find out, right? Keep listening, and I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, one, uh, just one last note I had. And that was, it's too bad that Superman didn't uh, think to use the potions before traveling through the time stream. But then that would have, you know, changed the entire course of history and he never would have met Lois to begin with. So That's a good point. Yeah. Plus, uh, at that point, if it's that far back, there, you know, there might not have been any quote-unquote crime and pollution and stuff. True. So, oh, yeah, probably would have just been a waste of the use, I guess. Of years ago. Yeah. Dinosaurs or whatever. So. It's a good thing he knows how to travel through the time stream since he didn't know how far <laughs> back he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's pretty good at that. Uh, this story has only been reprinted once, and that was in the uh, Best of DC Digest number 12, Superman in the Past, Future, and on Other Worlds. And it looks like it's got a bunch of time travel stories and uh, Superman traveling to other planets and whatnot. No, then it would make sense. It's got that uh, story from Action Comics 399 that you covered several several episodes ago. Okay. Dead, dead, dead. Oh, okay. Yeah. And The Secret of the Space Souvenirs, which is a Silver Age story. When did that come out? This was cover dated May 1981. Fairly nice Ross Andrew cover. Oh, that uh, that does look like a really cool cover. The time stream behind it and showing the cities. That is really cool. Is that a digest? Yes. It is a digest. So that's... Not only reprinted, but it's small. Right. That's really cool. Son of Superman. Oh, Son of Superman's coming up. Bus Ride to Nowhere's going to be coming up soon. I've read those. I have those. Planet of the Angel. Okay, that I, that was from the Denny O'Neill run. Excuse me. So most of these are Bronze Age, other than the souvenirs, space souvenirs one. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Really wish I'd looked that up before we started. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but you Thanks get... Thanks to the magic of the internet. Yes, I know. And you get... And just think, it's Fe- it's May 1981, and you get six Superman stories for less than a dollar. Yeah. Of course, they're half the size in black and white. Were those, the digests were black and white, weren't they? Uh, you know, I don't have any digests, but I want to say they were in color. Oh, okay. I, I would imagine. I'm not sure. Unless you've I... got... I'm look, uh, according to DC, uh, to Mike's Amazing World of DC, it doesn't say anything about being black and white. Doesn't okay. mean it's not black and white. I have like two digests somewhere, but um, I don't know what series they're from or 
<laughs> or where they're at even at this moment. So ah, gotcha. But looking at the, I'm looking at these covers here on the Green Comics database, and they had a lot of nice covers for these. The very next issue, 13, shows Superman and the uh, Batgirl, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Supergirl, and Green Arrow behind him, oh, flying wow. through the air. Oh, it's a uh, looks like it's a team up thing. Yeah. Having said that, we're probably way off topic. Okay. <laughs> you got any more comments about uh, Starry-eyed Siren of Space? Um, I don't know if it's just a difference in the writing style, but um, Bates' script, um, for better or for worse, actually seemed to let Swan open up the panels a little more. There's yes. um, he did he wasn't having to cram quite as many panels. He, I don't know if it's just he was trying to do something new with O'Neill's, but there was a lot more space for him to actually cut loose in the panels than mm-hmm. he was able to, even just the previous issue. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And, of course, Anderson's starting to meld better with Swan's pencils at this point. So right. it actually it's looks like Swan. It's all coming together. You've got some great stories coming yes. down the road. So I'm oh. kind of envious of you uh, on that, you know. Uh, you got a, one or two. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They're all good. Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. What else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with us now as we explore The Fabulous World of Krypton second story is The Death Trails of Krypton, and it's part of the Fabulous World of Krypton Untold Tales of Superman's Native Planet series of backups. And the story is by Carrie Bates, with art by Bob Brown and Murphy Anderson. And our story starts off with a young boy and his father staring up at a mysterious phenomenon in the sky above Krypton known as the Trails of Trollius. And what the Trails of Trollius are are green streaks through the crimson Kryptonian sky. The boy asks about their origins, but his father says that no one, not even scientists, are aware of their true origins, only that all aircraft are forbidden to fly through them. Thankfully, we the reader are privy to learn the origins of the strange trails, and the rest of the story is composed of a flashback that tells us just that. Time rewinds to 2,000 years prior, where Dal Un, a young Kryptonian chemical engineer, is preparing for a test flight of his new mechanical wings. And should the trial be successful, he will become the first Kryptonian to fly. Dal Und leaps off a cliff, activates the Trollium power unit attached to his belt, which powers the wings, and soars through the air like a bird. An unknown figure watches from the ground, remarking that a man flying presents the opportunity of a lifetime. Dal Und lands and is pleased with his test flight, but notices an unforeseen side effect. It seems his flight has left a residue trail in the sky, possibly caused by an energy discharge from the trollium. A flashback within the flashback reveals how Dal Und discovered the strange element and realized that it had a powerful energy output. He theorized that it would be a perfect as a compact fuel source for the mechanical wings he had been working on, 
and later renamed the new element Trollium after Krypton's mythological lord of the sky, Trollius. Back in the present, well, Dalton's present anyway, Dalton watches as a quasi-bird flies through the sky. He thinks on the idea that soon all Kryptonians will be able to fly. But then he's horrified as the quasi-bird flies through the radiation trails left from his flight and disintegrates. That actually looks pretty cool. Yeah. The... I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm actually sort of surprised that they showed that in a code-approved comic from this era, but that yeah, bird just basically blows up. It does. <laughs> See, just the, uh, like the body of the bird and the head is gone. Yeah, just the head gets worse. Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of scary. Anyway, anyway keep going. <laughs> Dahl, <laughs> Dahl runs a battery. Of, I'm just gonna call him Dahl because that name is really hard to pronounce. It's just N D. Dahl. I need vowels in my words. Uh huh. I'm just gonna call him Dahl. Okay. Dahl runs a battery of tests and determines that the effect is permanent, leaving him with no choice but to destroy the me- mechanical wings. If news were to spread of them, others would want them as well, further polluting the skies with deadly radiation. Suddenly, Dahl is knocked unconscious by a trolling crystal thrown by the mysterious figure from earlier in the issue. When Dahl regains consciousness, he realizes that the wings have been stolen. Meanwhile, the thief is attempting to use the wings, but struggling to get a handle on how to fly with them, resulting in wild streaks of the deadly radiation all through the skies of his, from his sporadic flight. Dahl recognizes the thief as a recently escaped murderer, and says he must stop him before he commits more evil with the wings. He runs back to his tent and emerges with a large bag full of gizoles, which was the currency used on ancient Krypton. He tells the thief that he will give him his entire fortune in exchange for the wings. The thief dives, intending to steal the money, kill Dahl, and keep the wings for himself. But when the thief gets to a certain spot, Dahl slams the bag of gizoles into the ground, causing a huge eruption of trollium crystals, which slam into the thief, forcing him to crash. Dahl retrieves the wings and sets them for remote control. He then steers them into the radiation trails, destroying them, while thinking that the radiation trails can serve as a warning sign that science can destroy when used unwisely. I like that. Yeah. They totally look like they're from biblical times. Yes. <laughs> kind of a cross between uh, you know, cavemen and... and Times. Yeah, he looks like uh, the the criminal, which who we don't get a name for. Right. Completely looks uh, like a he looks like well, I guess I mean Neanderthal, I guess. And then the other guy looks like he could hang out with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And I just totally went over your notes. Go ahead for it. <laughs> oh, no, you're, you're fine. It's your show. I'm just I'm just here. Um, I I didn't really have that many. Uh, page-by-page page notes on this one. It's only six pages, so there really, really wasn't that much. Right. But I liked on page two when the thief, he says, is that a bird or a man? Yes, a man flying with artificial wings. And I thought that was kind of a nice homage to the it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman yeah. line. Oh, okay. I hadn't even noticed that. I, I don't know if it's... It, it just seemed like a kind of a subtle homage to that. And then... What, whatever happened to the thief? We never find out. Well, it looks based on what you see from the um, from what I mean, what I took it is uh, the way those crystals and stuff are actually tearing through the wings and stuff. Yeah. I'm thinking that they pretty much tore through him, Ooh. and he when he falls he dies because he just because he says um, 
thus ends the second and last human, oh, just the human flight. But I would say he's dead. Hmm. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Um, that doesn't really matter. He didn't have a name anyway, so. Well, yeah, he's just, he's a red shirt, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, clearly the, the flying wings, though, were Bates was inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's flying machines. Before he was oh, even so. born. That's pretty cool. Well, no, I meant Bates when he was right. Oh, Carrie Bates. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Duh. Yeah, I don't think the Kryptonians got anything from there. Yeah. I knew but, that. Um, not too many other comments, really. I, I really like these Fabulous World of Krypton backups. Uh, the one you covered, uh, I think it was episode 8 or 9, which told the origin of uh, the name of Krypton mm-hmm. with the two space explorers. That's one of my favorites of the, you know, I love that Bronze Age story. That is really um, cool. It's kind of weird because they're like, Krip, Krip, Ton, Ton. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> other than that, yeah. And a lot of these concepts and characters and stories were never used or even brought up again, but they just added so much to the mythology and helped to make Krypton into a a tangible world, you know, a living and breathing society rather than just the place that blew up. And exactly. I really that. I completely agree with that. The um, I think I mentioned it on a previous episode, but the fact that this was a warmer Krypton than what we would have later really opened it up to allow you to do that more. Yes. And and just some of these um other ones that, well, even just the ones I've gone over, you see that it wasn't the perfect society that it's usually portrayed. I think right. it was um, I don't remember which episode it was, but I just did a episode recently where they uh. There was actually a demonstration going on again um, that some co- I think it was college kids, um, which were actually doing some kind of demonstration hippies, against something. Really? No, they didn't look like hippies. <laughs> but um, in fact, all, most of the costumes, and I think that most of the costumes in that story kind of look like uh, Buck Rogers type costumes. Okay. Uh, from like the 30s uh, comic strips. But, um, you know, kind of have the skirts and the almost Roman type helmets, but slightly more futuristic like. Mm -hmm. But, um, and they were like using these ray blasters that they had just trying to destroy a statue of some previous leader of Krypton. And you don't hear about that. No. And, uh, you get, and it's no longer, uh, a white only society. You see black people on Krypton in these stories. And I think most of that is actually introduced in here. Yes. What was that Vathlo Island or something? Uh, yeah, something like something, that. Something like that, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I remember it was, well, it's like the second or third one when they have, when, uh, they have Jorel trying to have a rocket that would be, go, travel around the planet and this is put him in suspended animation. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the people that was supposed to report back to him was, was just a black guy. You don't see that mostly on Krypton anyway. Yeah. So you think that was that was probably more. Man, I don't know if you really want to get into this. You know, <laughs> it was probably discussion. just because of the times. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, is is what I like to think anyway. It's just you know because they were starting to get more uh, people of color in the books, right. both at DC and Marvel, and I'm sure other comic companies. So. They probably thought, you know what, this would probably be a good idea to bring someone to into Krypton too. 
right. they don't get a huge role. In fact, I don't know if they ever have a huge role, but it was cool to see. It's nice to see, you see more. Basically, you're seeing more about Krypton that makes it a lot more relatable to Earth. Right. Yeah. Without them always saying, hey, this is like something you might see on Earth or something like that. So. And a lot of times, you know, since the reboot, post-crisis reboot, any, anything we've seen on Krypton has been in relation to Superman. Yeah. Uh, as far as, you know, he travels back in time. I guess he didn't do that post-crisis, but, <laughs> but, um, it's been about Jor-El or, um, or the, the Eradicator. And or stuff the Eradicator, like right. Yes. But these, a lot of these stories, I guess, well, I guess there was some Jor-El stuff, but like this Death Trails of Krypton, it has nothing to do at all with the House of El. Right, it has nothing to do with the elves or even the destruction of Krypton. Just right. some random story they decided to tell about something you probably have never even heard of on Krypton. There's, exactly, yeah. And you don't, you wouldn't get that in the post-crisis. Right. And it's really cool. Yeah. And I, I love the post-crisis stuff, but I do miss this kind of, uh, oh. like I said, a living, breathing world that we had. Exactly. Yeah, so. don't, yeah, don't get me wrong, people. I, I mean, I grew up reading the post-crisis stuff and I love that stuff but some of this stuff here is just really cool and I miss it right and it's kind of cool that they brought some of it actually back since the infinite crisis but I don't want to yeah, go into but that even, even there any exploration we get of it is an offshoot of Superman whether it's you know yeah exactly because they haven't through uh, for various reasons Laura yeah Supergirl's mother and uh, the new Krypton stuff yeah yeah but um, but yeah, it's there. Some of it's better, and some some of it they're still not really getting into it too much. Of course, I think now most of it they can't get too much into it because of the whole uh, Siegel Schuster DC trial thing. Oh, you think so? I think that's a lot of it because uh, Krypton is mentioned in the on the first page of Action Number One. No. And no. They just calls it a planet, don't they? Yeah, in Action they just called it a planet, but in Superman Number One. Um, they they uh, expanded Superman's origin to two pages, and it's named there. Okay. And the first place it was actually named in a story was in the very first newspaper strip. Okay. So, which you can find out about on that. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get the plug in there. Yeah. Well, I I want to say there was something about uh, the uh maybe it's just because they mentioned the plant. I don't know because they don't give it a name there. But I want to say there was something about Krypton that prevented them from being able to. That, well, it doesn't prevent them. They could still use it, but it could cause complications later on once with the trial. I want to say something about, uh, like, the characters of Superman and Clark and Lois, and I want to say that, well, it could also be open for interpretation, too, since technically they mentioned a dying planet. They just don't name it yet, so maybe it's an interpretation thing. But I know, because I know for, mo- for the most part, they totally st- stayed away from it when they did that secret origin. Um, Superman Secret Origin thing. Yes, yeah. yes. They just started when he's a kid and right. pick up when he turns to Superboy for the first time. So I want to say it has something to do with that. I'm not completely sure. Don't quote me. Okay. I'll probably end up editing that whole conversation out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's see. Why you got uh, you got more you want to say? Uh, I think that was it for this story. Uh, it's been reprinted. In uh, another digest, issue number 40 of the Best of DC And series. I actually pulled that one up. Oh, did you? And that uh, that one uh, came out in uh, 
cover date of September 83 with okay. a June 80, June 2nd, 83 uh, publishing date. Um, and this time it's still 96 cents, but it's buck 25. And it's, it's really a weird cover. They have, um, basically it looks like it's supposed to be, I guess, Jarrell and Laura in the foreground and you got Krypton behind them. And according to this, that's all drawn by Gray Morrow. And then you've got a, a, a faded out a little bit Superman in the background, which actually looks like, uh, one of the Garcia Lopez's, Lopez I, I covers. I was just thinking that, yeah. Totally looks like one of, like, um, Actually, if you look at that, I think that um, you've been to Metropolis. Yes. The city. Okay. I want to say if you take that head off, that's probably the image they use on that stand where you can put your head on Superman's body. It does kind of look like that. It looks like that could remember, be it. It's yeah. very one of the very stock poses. So, but yeah, that whole issue. There's like, and I'm guessing the name is born is on there. A lot of these Krypton yeah, ones are in there. Right now. And considering how many they've got, I would imagine they're all from the, uh, in fact, Joel's Golden Follies in there. Yeah, I'm going to have to hunt that down. I'm going to have to hunt down a lot of these digests. Though. Yeah, the, these digests they look like cool stuff. stuff. Uh, the Name is Born one. Uh, yeah, I, Death Trails of Krypton, Headband Warriors. I like that one once I get to it. But yeah, they've got, there's, it's 96 pages and they've got, I can't, one, let's see, six, nine, twelve. I think I've ever read that one. I don't know if I have either. Definitely looking forward to it, though. Uh, there's like 12, 13, 14 maybe ish, uh, stories in this one book. Wow. And it's probably because they're all from the backups. Yeah. Well, yeah, six pages, seven pages. So. And it looks like that Kryptonian-style marriage one is coming up from Superman 246. So that's going to be... Just a few episodes away. Yeah. Just a couple, yeah, like three three, three episodes. episodes. That's right. Cool. And Doomsayer is one I've already, I've also done too, because that's from 236. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I'm looking at more of these, and it's really cool to see some of them, like, most of them actually appear to be Superman. I've seen a few Batmans, and a couple where they do the year's best. Right. Uh, but other than that, there's, um, I've got, Sugar I've seen... Spike. Yeah, I was just gonna say I've got I see one Le- I've seen the one or two Legion, a couple of Superboy ones. There's a Metal Man one, and that actually has a really cool cover. But um, and then they got Sugar and Spike and funny stuff, and it's like what? <laughs> it's kind of weird to see. I, I never got into the whole Sugar and Spike. I don't understand the appeal of it. Or... No, or Binky Summer Fun. Binky. Yeah. I don't think uh Binky at that point. Now I haven't actually looked, but I know Binky's still going on at the time that what, at the era we're talking about. But I'm betting most of the Binky stuff wasn't hadn't been published for maybe ten years by that point. Right. So it's kind of. But then I'm I'm kind of a, I'm pretty much a superhero guy too. So well, yeah, yeah, me too. I start talking about Archie and all that. I yeah. If it, if people like it, they like it. So. Well, I I kind of have fun when I go it's over the uh, elsewhere in the multiverse stuff because. Mm-hmm. They actually have some really funny articles in the, uh, those love, the love books. <laughs> it's actually, I haven't read them, but just the cover, it looks kind of funny. Yeah. Alright, so we have run out of the five minutes of that one. So we'll get, go ahead and, um, we should probably right, get back to uh, the actual show. Okay, there's one final story in this issue, and it was actually a reprint from Superman number 38 from 1946, and it was called The Battle of the Atoms. And 
basically the story is that Superman defends Metropolis from an attack by Lex Luthor and his newly created atomic weapon. So, which is actually really, really small. Yeah, really, really tiny. It looked like h- half a grenade in the picture. <laughs> yeah, um, it's pretty much a typical uh, Golden Age story from from that era. The, it has uh, a lot of history behind it, though. Yeah, it was. There's a little box here on the uh, the reprint. I assume it was on the original too. It was originally meant to be published in 1944, but there were uh, wartime restrictions from the Department of Defense about publishing stories that dealt with atomic weaponry because they were working on the atomic bomb at that point. So um, this story got uh, censored and wasn't able to be printed until the war was over. That's And that's pretty cool that they actually – that means that whether they want to hear it or not, that means that someone in the government was reading Superman comics. Right. So, <laughs> hmm, probably the president. Well, they, they sent um, – Superman comics were sent overseas to the to the troops and whatnot. Yes. So – In fact, I think uh, Siegel was actually – was, was read and censored, so. Probably. That's probably how they spotted it. Although it would have had to have been published for them to see it, so I don't know. Maybe – Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I know Siegel got drafted at some point. Yes. And I think he was writing from from over there and sending uh-huh. it back. So it could have been one of his stories that they caught it when it was coming back, maybe. Could I don't think this was a Seagull story, though. Then again, I don't know what I'm talking about, apparently. It's the Golden Age. That's your era. Uh, <laughs> let me look it up real quick. I'm pretty sure this wasn't a Jerry Siegel story, though. Let's see. Nope, Don Cameron. Okay. You got it faster than I did. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Don Cameron was the writer on that. So I don't know. What I'm talking about. Anyway, maybe I can. Is this from 1940s? I got a while before I get to it in my show. Maybe I can do some research before I get there. Yeah, it's from Superman 38, which was January, February 46. Right. So, so in sure you know a decade when I get to there on my show. There you go. You got plenty of time. The other thing I wanted to mention about this issue before, uh, were you finished about that? About the story, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, right before, in between um, the Krypton story and the Superman classic, we do have. For some reason, because I'm not sure why, they decided to show a cover, a copy of the cover of the famous first issues of the Superman family. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, Superman number one, Superboy number one, which, uh, if in my opinion, um, I'm guessing you're going to be getting to that in a long time. But now that super, the Superman you see on that cover looks like a Wayne Boring Superman with a Joe Schuster head. Yes, it does. So that's that's kind of weird. Anyway, and then we have uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number one, uh, which has been covered on Billy Hogan's podcast, uh, Superman Fan Podcast. And then we have Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. And you can really tell, I don't know why I'm even bothering to point it out, but the bottom two, the uh, Jimmy Olsen and the Lois Lane, you can really tell the advancement of Kurt Swan's art in those four years between the two covers because that's Kurt Swan on both of them. And that first one almost doesn't look a lot like Kurt Swan art, but the second one definitely looks like it, even with the less yeah. detail. Yeah. His style just really... Really, evolved. yeah. Just the four years. It's pretty cool. But and I just don't understand why they... Dis- Maybe they just needed something to throw in here, but it kind of doesn't make sense because there's no famous first in this issue, other than it's the famous first issue after Denny O'Neill's story. 
Right. <laughs> so I could just be they had a didn't sell enough advertising for that issue. That yeah, a, that's what I'm thinking. It's like oh crud, we got one more page. We need to put something in it. I just right. put the first issue of all the other books. That's and just some covers on there. I'm kind of surprised they didn't put action number one on there. Yeah. That's <laughs> but of course it's for the Superman family, so maybe that's why. But yeah. And since Supergirl doesn't have her own book yet. Right, she was, she's still she, in Adventure. She's still in Adventure at this point, yeah. So, I don't, it, I could see them doing that maybe for like inside the first issue when Supergirl gets her story, but I'm thinking it like you, it's just one of those, they either ran out, they had an extra page they needed to fill or didn't sell enough advertising space or something. But, anyway, sorry. That's all right. Okay, so, um, did you by chance read through the letters pages in this issue? Uh, no, I skinned them to see if any of the, uh, if any future comic book people worked on them, but I didn't really read them. I take it you oh. did? I did, and I was struck by the, the diversity of the letter writers, because there's, uh, army sergeants and chemistry instructors and men and women, it's just kind of a, really? a cross section, yeah. Wow, I thought, I, I, I was under the impression most of the letter writers were just young, well, like boys and maybe college age guys. No, I mean, this one guy, he says he's uh, uh, writing on behalf of his chemistry class, and it gives his address as New Denver, uh, British Columbia. So Wow. That tells me he, and it says he's an instructor, so. Wow, international. Yeah. Sweet. What uh, what issue are they talking about? That's this, I'm guessing, 40, 240, what, 1? And it's a thousand degrees, a name is born, uh, 238. Okay. Superman, Superman 238, yeah. yeah but the, sucks, the, the, the comments don't really seem that much different than what you see fans talking about today because there's people saying that Superman needs a new costume or <laughs> that the books are, are, aren't are lining up continuity-wise and, and uh, Superman's power level is too weak. And wow. In fact, the one guy, he actually makes the same comments that you made earlier about... See if I can find it here. Uh, yeah, uh, how long do you keep? How long do you plan to keep Superman in two time periods? Superman's magazine Man of Steel is wrestling with the same thing and a general feeling of malaise and weakness. Jimmy Olsen's Superman doesn't know the same thing exists. He's too busy fighting Kirby creations. Action Superman, uh, Action Superman might know about the Kirby creatures, although I've found no evidence of it. But he's definitely not troubled by the same thing. How about it, editor? One Superman. Wow. And uh, what did Ridwell. they say? Ridwell kind of comes off kind of a, like a jerk in some of these replies, but Uh-oh. maybe that's maybe I'm just reading the wrong tone about it. Let's see, what does uh, he say? That's what we'd like to get. One Superman. However, there are four editors. Okay. However, yours truly tries to get things smoothed out among the many mags, but it's easier to leave certain parts of the Superman legend to certain editors. The sand thing is an example. Who's to say he wasn't on the scene when the Olsen and action epics occurred? But Julius Schwartz and Denny O'Neill handled him from birth to his self-exile from Earth in the last issue. Doesn't really answer the question. No. <laughs> Not at all. But yeah, I, I, I want to say that Bridwell was actually the assistant editor on just about all the books. I think he's, he was. He's editing. He edits Lois. Um, I want. He might have been an assistant editor, although all I know is that Jack Kirby was editing um, 
the Jimmy Olsen book after a couple issues. And then I know he's assistant editor to Murray Boltonoff and to Julie Schwartz on the other stuff. So as just the assistant editor, I could see where he would be having a problem uh, trying to, you know, put everything together and make it work out. But it's just, yeah, it, it does make for some confusing times. Granted, I mean, on the plus side, you could definitely just read one Superman book and not have to worry about what's going on in the others. But I'm glad that, what, I'm just really glad that someone from 1971 was having a problem with this and considering I'm looking at it from 19, from 19, wow, from 2011 and I've been, I've read through years where they, where we had like the, you know, the triangle numbers and uh, all that. Yes. So seeing it kind of like this is a little weird, but, uh, you really can't, I mean, even, I, I'm, even now they, they at least try to honor what's going on in the other books, even though, you know, they don't always tie into each other like they used to. Yeah, but, they're trying to they're trying to make everybody happy now. Right, but even but I'm glad to see back then even someone from '71 was having a problem with it too. That makes me right. feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel a lot better. Um, what did they say about? They want to know the chemical formulas for red, green, white, gold, and blue kryptonite. Yeah. Hmm. And then they ask how it's related to the noble gas Krypton, atomic number 36 on the periodic table. And Bridwell says, uh, despite the similarity, similarity in names, it has nothing to do with any gas, noble or peasant. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. It doesn't really, again, they don't answer the question, but I like how they, uh, go ahead and do that. Right. Interesting. I love this stuff. Oh, and there's even this one. By the soldiers, um, right under that one about the chemistry one, and they actually mention a golden age story. Clark attempted to enlist in the army during World War II, oh, as to, yeah. revealed in the newspaper strip. But he yeah. tried too hard with his eye test and turned on his X-ray vision and read the wrong chart. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, and that's let's see, that's World War II, so that's probably. 41, 42, so you've got a while before you get to that, too. I've got a long time, yeah. But I'll get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be listening. Good. I haven't missed, haven't missed one yet. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And in fact, I've been kind of going through a withdrawal because I've actually caught up on all my podcasts. Uh huh. And so I was sitting there Friday night and I was like, I have nothing to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what am I going to do? But of course, it doesn't help that I got a new cell phone that, um, is also an MP3 player. Oh, so you can listen to them everywhere? Yeah. So I can go into Walmart and do some shopping and, while listening to you or somebody else, and it's it's nice. But as convenient as it is, it leaves me a lot more time to not have a podcast to listen to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so I guess that's it for Superman. Um, uh, what I'll do now is I'll go ahead, we'll go ahead and we'll do some promos, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about action. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger 
The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life, April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com the blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest 
and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. All right, next up we have Action Comics number 405 uh, with an October 1971 cover date, and it was released on August 31st, 1971 with a cover by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, and it actually features Superman uh, basically standing up in front of the president in the White House with the official seal of the President of the United States on his desk. And Superman is blocking the explosion of what looks to be a door. And it says, The assassin has broken through every one of your traps. Not even you, Superman, can save the President from... And that's all it says. (laughs) And it says at the bottom, Reader, we dare you to guess the secret identity of the President's killer. The answer will not only surprise you, but shock you. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to say about the cover? Yeah, I don't really like this cover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's a fine cover. Adam's art or Adams's art is great, but all the uh, all the text on it, it just really detracts. And you've got this box at the bottom with the we dare you to guess the identity, and then you've got the big seal that talks about the backup stories mm-hmm. and the text balloon and the the price and the comics code and the in fact, yeah, action, it's just a lot of stuff on this cover. In fact, to fit it in, Action Comics actually got shrunk from what they usually have on the covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, my cover is really... <laughs> the cover I'm looking at um, actually has been... It looks like it's gone through the ringer a few times. So it's also got a lot of crinkles and stuff. But, um, yeah, I completely agree. The, although I do think the uh, bubbles look kind of cool with the pinkish tone. But the box at the bottom and that little seal about the backups totally kill it. Right. And if it's like you almost I, the cover feels like the can all be summed up in just that one side where you're supposed to see the president but you barely see him because Superman's arms in the way. Yeah, that's kind of weird too. It's I like everything's squeezed in. Yeah. But once again, we have 25 cent cover price because it's bigger and better with extra stuff, and not all the backups are Superman this time. So, Aww. I know it's sad, but we'll see what happens. But uh, let's see. So, we start off in the, the wait a minute, I just made up a word there. Um, <laughs> let's see. The story is called Superman: Bodyguard or Assassin. The writer is Carrie Bates. The art is Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor was Murray Boltonoff. And as I like to say, even though we didn't say it, but that's okay, because I usually forget at least once or twice in an issue or in an episode, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Even, and none of the... St- unfortunately, weren't being credited us so at this point. No, not at all. Not until 76 or so. 
when they were shamed into doing so with the movie. Yeah. Yes, and Neil Adams' help. So that was. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, what's his name? The guy that helped Batman, Jerry Robinson. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's someone that should be doing a podcast. Someone that can't remember names, but yeah, Jerry Robinson <laughs> also helped a lot with that apparently. Yes. So, um, but um, none of the Superman stories in this issue have ever been reprinted, so don't have to worry about looking those up. Uh, but anyway, we are at, it's on an imaginary day in the future, and Superman is called to the White House to see the president. After being checked out by a security system that was installed by General Trevis, who's there to, you know, keep the president safe. The president shows Superman a taped recording that was disguised as the president's paperweight. Uh, the pa- recording basically says that it's from a man named uh, Marzapun, who claims that he will kill the president by 9 o'clock tonight, which is also when the president is supposed to be signing the Uniworld Peace Treaty that calls for the deactivation of all nuclear arms. Please remember that this is an imaginary story, so... They're not trying to say this is actually going to happen tonight. Um, Agreeing to take the president to a secret base in the southwest, which is called Tanakam, Superman uh, also agrees to be his bodyguard until it is time to sign the treaty. While Travis makes preparations from the Pentagon, Superman flies the president, wrapped up in his super cape, to the uh, underground base. Uh, Once inside, they get everything locked down and all the security systems are activated including, but not limited to, uh, gushing jets of shimmering molten steel, pockets of concentrated lethal gases, and a deadly ring of pulsating radioactive isotopes, which tells me that um, that has got to be the most safe place, and yet also dangerous place in the entire world, but I don't know. I'm no expert. Um, Back to the story, though. Um, Where was I? Ah, but soon, they end, uh, while talking to Travis on the communications uh, devices, they start losing communication, and suddenly there's a blip on a radar indicating that someone has found the entrance and is heading down to the base. Exterior video cameras show that the ground was actually ripped open by hand, and somehow, I guess they had HD back then, Superman is able to see the fingerprints left behind and recognize them as his own, which makes... Like I said, which makes no sense since he hasn't left the room and because he's looking through a 1971 monitor. Uh, The president, thank you very much. The president notes that Marsapoon is only about 3,127 feet away. And that is actually important because I forgot to mention that the tunnel that has to be taken from the surface down to the secret base is a mile long. So he's already made significant progress if he's only 3,127 feet away. So Superman runs the recording uh, from earlier through a computer system and discovers that the voice on the tape matches his own voice print. Uh, And then he also realizes that Marzipoon is an anagram of Superman, which causes him to go a little... He starts wondering what the heck's going on and seems to be a little bit off his rocker at this point. Meanwhile, in a secret room under the Pentagon, General Trevis is watching everything that is taking place with an evil grin. We learn that he is one of two Gemini agents sent by a mysterious organization that wants to incite World War III. When he was preparing Tanakam, he was actually rigging things to mess with Superman. It turns out that Mars Poon does not exist, and that the recording was made by splicing together tapes of Superman's voice. And Trevis set up tracking devices to make it look like someone 
was heading into the bunker when really they weren't. And he has a thought scrambler set up to upset Superman's thought process and making him go crazy. So the fact that he's confused is why he's not able to put two and two together and make the giant leaps in logic like he did in that issue of Superman. As Travis hops into a jet to Tonacom, the president begins reminding Superman of his super feats to help him regain his confidence. Several hours later, and there must have been lots of super feats, uh, by the time it appears that Marzipoon is only about 91 feet away, uh, we see that General Travis has entered a secret area in the base and watches from a secret window as Superman tells the president that his nerves are shot and he's in no condition to keep him safe. As Marzipoon gets closer and closer, we see the fear building on Superman's face. Suddenly, there is a large boom and the door actually falls in. As Travis secretly begins videotaping what's going on, Superman sees his reflection in a looks like a giant mirror, and finally cracks, calling himself Marzipoon. As he begins to attack the president, uh, the president pulls out a gamma gun give, that was given to him by Travis in case Superman turned on him. He fires at the Man of Steel, but the ray bounces back, hitting the president in the chest. However, as the president lies dying, we see that he, it was actually a Superman robot that was with the president, and that the gamma ray caused it to explode and deactivate. But before it dies... Travis emerges from his secret room and asks where the real Superman is. The robot explains that they switched places during a brief moment with the president, or during a brief moment when the president wasn't looking. So General Travis leaves, taking the tape with him of the recording, or of the video recording, and he plans to show it to the world that Superman killed the president, and then he disposes of all the evidence by actually destroying Tonakam. And we actually see the president still lying inside as the fire and explosions envelop him. Streaking across the country in his jet, Travis contacts his superiors to report a success. But for some reason, the superiors report that their data indicates failure. Just before an energy blast, tra uh, Travis... Uh, Just before an energy blast uh, hits Travis from the receiver he's using... He sees the president emerge from the back of the plane. As Travis dies, the president, in quotes, because it's not really him, mentions that he really wants to get at, the, at Travis's superiors. Since the receiver is still off the hook, it's off the hook, we see a, sorry, <laughs> we see a figure streak from the plane, and it is Superman re removing his president disguise as he used his microscopic vision or uses his microscopic vision to trace the air-to-ground radio pulses. As he does this, he reveals via thought balloon that the president has been suspicious of Travis for months and had Superman check out the gamma gun. When he discovered that it, it was a booby trap, he took the president to his fortress, then disguised himself as the president and used a robot to replace Superman, using a small micro-console to control the robot and superventriloquism to make it talk. Unfortunately, the superiors were communicating with Superman from a specially rigged phone booth. Looks like it's on the top of a mountain, too. Uh, a voice on the other end basically tells Superman that he's won the battle but not the war, and then destroys the phone booth by remote. So Superman heads back to Washington, realizing that Gemini uh, actually means twin, and that there may be another agent after the president. The next day, after the treaty has been signed, we see the president with his secretary, only she has a weird symbol on her thumbnail. The end. And um, I, sh I forgot to mention this uh, when I was doing the my synopsis, but the and it kind of kills it because of 
the way I'm presenting it, but um, the th- the symbol on her thumbnail actually matches the symbol on Travis's thumbnail as shown on page eight. So the indication there is that the weird symbol means that she is probably ge- the second Gemini spy, and therefore she's going to cause problems for the president in the future. An imaginary future that may or may not ever happen. Uh, but then again, aren't they all imaginary? So, um, as far as notes, I have a few more page by page stuff than I nor- than I did for the last one. Um, page five. Actually, we should probably do these in order. Uh, let's see. Do you have any for other pages before we get to? F- ah, yes, you do. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> before we get into that, I just, I just I'm not a fan of this story. I I don't think it's a very good story. Okay. Um, there's just a lot of weird stuff, and we'll get into it as we go through the page-by-page stuff. But the first major thing is on page two, and if Tonacom is so impenetrable, then why does Superman have to stay with the president other than for the sake of plot? That's a good point. That's a very good point. Although um, I want to say that there was something – I could be remembering wrong, but I want to say that part of it was because if they figured that he could get into the White House office – there's a possibility he could already be in the... Let's see. I don't know. That's a good question. He could already be hidden in the base somewhere, you mean? Yeah, but then okay. again... Um, it doesn't say... Oh, the pre- okay, yeah. There's no real reason other than the president asks him to be there. Yeah. So, that's a good point. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, page four, when they were going through the different um, death traps, the mm-hmm. molten steel and the lethal gas, it just reminded me of when Superman was breaking into Luther's lair in Superman the oh, movie. Yes, yes. Uh, it would have been. Fire and all that. It actually would have been kind of cool to see Superman go through them. Yes, it would have. Uh, I guess yes. basically what we actually end up getting is kind of uh, basically from, I guess, like Otis's point of view. Because <laughs> you know that they're, yeah. that they're, that he's coming, but you don't actually see him. Although they uh-huh. did have the video, but it would have been kind of cool to see the door just slowly open in Superman's face like that. That would have been yeah. cool. Uh, I guess my note, uh, I do have one on page five. And the bottom of page five, now I don't have much trouble with the art and most of the issue. But um, at the bottom of page five, they really look weird. Yeah, they do. It's, I think... I, it's I, a weird angle and it's a weird angle and weird shading and the president looks like he's been using mascara on his eyelashes and um you know and now that I think about it if you notice uh, and he does and Swan does this a little earlier um when he's doing a future story an imaginary future story but other than Superman the other characters in this issue have a like really long hair with long large sideburns well, that was the style in the 70s, 1970s. Okay. I guess that makes sense here, but like that, uh, the one story I was talking about, um, I don't know, it was like 396 and 397, I guess, or 397 and 398. Oh, yeah. It was supposed to be the 90s, and they still had hair like this, but I don't know. Like this, You're right. I'm sorry. Never mind. <laughs> but, yeah, it makes sense. It's, it's in the sh- near future, probably the closest to present that we've ever seen in an imaginary future story, but... Okay. Uh, let's see. I don't have anything till page eight. You got something before that? You do. Just this, 
just at seven eight seven pages seven and eight were just talk 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 exposition exposition exposition. Yes, yes, yes. Nothing basically, basically explaining everything that had to set up exactly how all this is happening. And really, it's these two pages that make me. My very last note was that this feels like a Silver Age story as well, but not in a good way, <laughs> because you've got just two pages of them explaining everything. Yeah. And even, it's a, even having a whole panel devoted to showing you that Marzipan is a anagram of Superman, and they've got the letters written out. It's like, oh, just come on, move on. I know. It. It's like, it's, can't they just say it's an anagram and let yeah. you figure it out? But yeah. it, I, I can see what you're saying because it's like they're talking down to the reader. Mm-hmm. And the, it, it's also a weird place to put it, too, because they're basically explaining the whole story halfway through it. Right. Um, yeah, I... Like you, I think I have it in my note. I'll go ahead and say it. It's um, it starts off really weird in Silver Age. I like it. It does get better by the end. I thought, but espe- yeah, like you said, especially where they have this exposition part, it's just was like, mm-mm. yeah. But um, then my next note was on page eight where you see uh the weird symbol on Travis's thumbnail, and I got to tell you this story. I didn't even notice that until you mentioned it. I didn't notice it the first time either. I actually had to look through it a second time because um. Once I got to the end, I was trying to figure out what the whole scene with the secretary was about. Mm-hmm. I noticed she had one on her thumb, so I was like, I wonder if he had one. So I started going back through the story and finally found it there. But yeah, I hadn't even noticed it until uh, the second or third try, uh, go through on that. But um, it's amazing how well how much these people think to themselves. Yes. <laughs> if he hadn't just explained it to himself there, we would never know what's going on. We never would have known what was going no. on. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but this story probably has the most um, detailed thumbnails you will see in a Superman story ever. Uh, just between this uh, this scene and later pages, Yeah. I noticed you really see a lot of thumbnails and fingernails and stuff in a lot of detail, not just like a circle on the end of a finger. You see uh-huh. the, You see everything. Um, sorry, uh, your turn. I really like the art on um, 11 through 13, pages 11 through 13, uh, the, the Swan Anderson art. I thought that was really nice on those three pages. Yeah, I like uh, the uh, Superman's range of emotion at the top mm-hmm. of 11. This is the, for those who don't have the issue in front of them, this is the the issue where uh, Marzipan finally crashes through the... Uh, the uh, Reinforced door, and then Superman turns on the president. Well, sort of. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. And, and then, then that ends up getting shot. It's just a really nice three pages of art. And um, I actually skipped one. Uh, page 10, just going back a second. Uh, at the bottom of page 10, um, when you see Superman, uh, looks like he's kind of going crazy. Well, for one, that looks like really good art there. I yes. really like Superman on that. But uh, you can actually tell he's running his fingers through his hair. Yeah, you can, can't you? Uh, Swan doesn't do that a lot. Uh, I've noticed, like, even when he's supposed to be flying at super speed, his hair doesn't move too much usually. Okay. And it makes it look kind of... Tony and hair gel, I think. Yeah, I know. It makes it look like it's really gelled down and look like you wouldn't want to touch it. But here it actually looks like maybe normalish hair. Yeah. It's kind of cool. But beyond that, um, and on page 12 we actually do see... A reflection of Superman, and a lot of times they forget to do that. Even like mm-hmm. more current, they'll get the symbol backwards, but then they forget the hair, or they'll get the hair backwards yeah. and forget the symbol. Something's always making it look like it's just the same image. 
Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, let's see. Do I have anything more? Uh, page fourteen. We have a Superman robot, but they were supposed to be deactivated quite a bit ago. Okay, that answers my question about why this was an imaginary story because I couldn't think of any um, anything in it except for the Uniworld Peace Treaty, mm-hmm. you know, that would make it be an imaginary story. But there was a letter on the letters page that made reference to something, you know. Uh, that seemed to indicate there were certain plot points that they couldn't use in a real story. Right. But it didn't elaborate. But if the robots were deactivated, then that, then that explains. Right. Okay. Yeah. The um. <laughs> granted, I can't remember exactly which one, which issues it was, but um, just a few months, uh, a few issues ago, they actually had deact, uh, Superman deact, or actually it happened in World's Finest, the issue with Batman in it. Okay. Um, he deactivated the Superman robots because they were having a uh, pollution. They were uh, because of all the pollution on Earth, uh, it was messing up with the uh, circuitry in the robots, and they were ah. not acting correctly. Oh, okay. So Superman was forced to deactivate them all. Now the only thing is that those Superman robots were um, completely auto- automat. Uh, they were automatons, and they okay. could think and they could think and kind of do stuff on their own. Right. And this one he had to control. So I'm not. I'm wondering maybe if that was enough of a difference that they could kind of use it in the story. Could be, or you know, just chalk it up to imaginary story. Uh, that's probably it too. Beca- yeah. But I mean, because Superman literally had a remote control for everything, and was having to provide super ventriloquism. Then again, if he was having to wing it, as he says later, he was. Ha- he, if they had to wing it, uh, the whole their whole scene together, that could also be a reason. But yeah, I'm sure that that's part of why it was an imaginary. That in the future, but yeah, I'm sure that's pretty much it. Um, Let's see, do you have one before mine? No, 16. Okay, 16. Um, my note for page 16 is super ventriloquism. Yeah. That has got to be my least favorite and the cheesiest um, <laughs> superpower he ha- other than rainbows out of the fingers that he actually ever has. Yeah. And it literally seems to me... Now, I don't remember the story where they introduce it, but it literally seems to me like it's a... It's, Basically, um, a writer was trying to figure out ways to help have Superman prove that Clark Kent is a Superman and wrote himself into a corner, so they invented this so that they we'll could... use super ventriloquism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say he can do this, and then, you know, that way he can make the Superman balloon talk, Yeah. and therefore you can have super- Superman and Clark in the same thing. Unfortunately, it mostly gets forgotten later on. Yeah, and but, when they get to the more, I hate to use the word serious, but the, the yeah. more uh, down to earth stories, I guess. Yeah, in, uh, or more modern, stuff. modern more stuff. Mo- yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I did notice. Um, I don't know if you've read the. Have you read the uh, Superman novels that Elias, Elliot S. Magan did? Not for a while. Okay, now I don't remember. <sighs> I, I really have a bad memory, apparently. But um, one of the one of them actually involves Lex Luthor contacting Superman. Uh-huh. And he's supposed to be, or he's supposed to trying to get in touch with Superman, but he ends up calling the uh, GPS and talks to Clark. And Clark uh, uses the phone call to actually trace where Luther is. Okay. Uh, but the whole time he's carrying a conversation with Luther over the phone because he's using super ventriloquism. 
to throw his voice back to his office <laughs> to talk his clerk through the phone through the while phone. He, yeah while he's using his like vision powers or whatever to actually fly through the city and find where the phone calls coming from yeah. uh yeah but so even he used it. And that but, was that was late seventies too. Yeah, late seventies or early eighties, depending on which book it was in. I want to say it was the first one, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, I really don't like that power. I thought it was kind no. of. No. Uh, but you have a note for page sixteen also. I I don't understand why if. Okay, so Superman was a robot, but the president was Superman. So Superman was actually in the room the whole time. So why didn't what was his name, Jervis? Tevis? Te, ter, uh, tev, te, uh, yeah. Why didn't his thought scrambler affect Superman if he was in the room anyway? I don't... I I, I want to know how he figured out about it, too. Because when you see, when you actually see uh, the general in there, he's actually yeah. got the thing aimed at, the, at Superman. Yeah. So the robot. At the robot, yeah. But it... I wouldn't. If Superman's in complete control of it, it shouldn't be messing him up. So I want to know at what point Superman was able to figure out about the Thought Scrambler. I don't know. It, it's not. Yeah, that's a that's a loophole. <laughs> and yeah, you, it, it, depending, considering it doesn't look like it was really automated, it should have just affected Superman anyway. Which yeah. Should have thrown the whole plan into a tizzy. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I'm- then on page 17, we have a random phone booth on top of a mountain <laughs> in the middle of an ocean. Yeah, I know. I mean, it looks cool. It, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, like, it's the first cell phone. But just, I, I don't understand what it's just. Yeah, it's uh definitely looks like the TARDIS decided to show up and <laughs> look more futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh. It definitely looks. It, it. I don't know. It's like they obviously planned that Superman was gonna. Follow the signal or something, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't but they have went known. to all the trouble of setting up this phone booth to use. Just and no one can time? get no one can or... get to it except Superman. How yeah. else? How, okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Or... Well, yeah, but still, you yeah, have to be a flying hero or flying. Well, you could be a flying villain, but you'd have to be someone that can fly to get to it or have right. access to maybe a really small helicopter. Yeah. So well, not even a helicopter because you'd have to. There's no place to land the helicopter. Really. Good point. You'd have. So you'd have to. Yeah. So see, I, I, that's a good point. Though I don't know, phone booth on top of a mountain. That's that's pretty interesting. And um, now my note uh, for page 18 is just that the secretary has the same thumbnail and kind of gives it an ominous cliffhanger because it's like dun dun dun, but then they don't have it to be continued. So yeah, sucks. and it's it's frustrating because there's no real resolution to the story. Yeah, I mean, Trevis is done away with, but the the, the threat to the president still exists. You know. Yeah. Was was this ever followed up on with a, another story or? I'm not sure. Let me check something real quick. I'm thinking it wasn't because it was imaginary, but you would hope it would be because that's just messed up. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's an imaginary. Let me see if it's the next issue. Next There's issue. There's even a, 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 you know, a narrative box here at the end uh, asking, but will the Gemini assassin succeed? Or will Superman be summoned to thwart the plot? You know, so I don't... Yeah, nope. Doesn't look like it ever gets followed up on. Huh. So, yeah, it's one of those fun ones. At least not in action. Maybe they came back to it later, but in action it doesn't look like it. So, yeah, it's kind of a... It, it's a cool cliffhanger. It'd just be nice if there was a part two to finish it. Yeah. But since it's 
a possible future and it's imaginary, they can do that, I guess. I, I guess know. so. It, it, I don't know. It's just one of the things I didn't like about the story. So. Yeah, not my favorite thing. But um, otherwise, um, like I said, it, it was somewhat entertaining other than some of the Silver Agey stuff. And, like, and it did start off... It started off to me... Um, like some of the really cheesy Leo Dorfman stories that have been in some of the issues. Yeah. But by the end, it seemed like it was getting a little bit better. Um, but like you said, there's a lot of plot holes in there that right. kind of mess up the story. I did like the art, other than that one panel. Um, yes, the art was very nice. And um, like I said before, they're obviously meshing together. And I really liked uh, Swan's... The, the look of the... Of the Expressions on Superman's face, even though it was a yes. robot, on the top of page eleven. Mm-hmm. And um, the only thing is, do we really did we really need another imaginary story? They're trying to yeah. over in Superman. They're working on. They're, they've been trying to get rid of, and even in World's Finest for a little bit, they've been trying to get rid of some of the cornier stuff from the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. And but meanwhile, action is still apparently kind of stuck in the Silver Age with all their with imaginary stories. And this is like the this is the third one we've had in less than a year, if you count the yeah. two-part one as two stories. But it's just, I don't know. It it, it just seems kind of cheesy to keep doing that. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't mind the imaginary stories too much, but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It, it it's not that they're a bad thing because I like the Elseworld stuff, most of them, mm-hmm. and the imaginary stories are kind of cool. But I would think at some point it's just like you know you you want to get a story that is just a you know, a real Superman story, not read all, you know, read this whole story, but really doesn't matter. Right. You know, I guess that's what it is, but especially since they're jumping the price up and stuff to, up to a whole quarter now. A whole quarter, huh? I don't know. Yeah. Some kids can't afford that extra dime. Yeah. So. <laughs> Think about the readers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Poor kids. Um, One last note on the art on page 16, the uh-huh. second panel there, mm-hmm. and the third one too. You see that uh, Superman, who is still disguised as the president, his suit's all ripped and his hair's, the wig is mussed up from being yes. the explosion of the, the base, which was yes. a nice detail. I like that, especially since we did see him a couple pages earlier actually stuck in the explosion. Right. So that that is really cool. And then when you see him fly off, you see all the parts of it like deteriorate as he's flying uh-huh. at super speed. I thought that yeah. that is really cool. I, in fact, I thought that part of his hair be, was just kind of drawn weird, but I guess uh, on that second panel, his hair, it looks like some of it actually is gone, probably just because it got ripped away with the explosions. Could be, yeah. Now that I look at it again. But the only problem is, continuity-wise, is how did he get on the plane without losing the costume? Oh, well. Anyway. Because <laughs> he would have had to go at super speed, I would imagine. Just to get in there without Travis seeing him, hmm. but that's where I get nitpicky and stuff. Or so <laughs> pressurizing the cabin and exactly, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but anyway, um, and as Michael was kind enough to note for me because my copy doesn't have the extra stories on action, um, there were two other stories uh, before we get to the back to these back, Superman backup uh, that were actually reprints. We have the Red Dust Bandit from Action Comics 192, which is a uh, which is a vigilante story. And apparently, did you actually read these? Yes, I did. 
Okay. Was the vigilante? That sounded kind of geeky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I did read it. In fact, um, yeah, I read them. I see that it's about a vigilante thwar- uh, thwarting a criminal who looks like Greg Saunders. Greg but... Saunders is the vigilante. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So basically, it's one of those stories where they're trying to stop a criminal that looks like the good guy without revealing that the good guy is the hero. Right. Okay. Yeah. Greg Sanders is a uh, he's a singing cowboy. Travels from town to town. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, he goes into this town, and there just happens to be a criminal there that looks just like him, and tries to impersonate him. And wow, different parents wacky, and everything—that's pretty wacky cool. Hijinks. So. Now that's from the what? That's 192. That's got to be pretty old. Fi- uh, uh, yeah, let me. Late okay. 50s, probably. Oh, not that late. Oh. Um. Then again, I'm. Oh yeah, 1954. Okay. Oh, so mi- uh, mid 50s. So who um did it how does the art look? Does it look like very silver agey or um it looks like late golden age. Okay. So not bad but not very good. Yeah. I mean it's 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 alright, yeah. Howard Sherman. I'm not familiar with his work, but okay. I'm not really either except for this this story that I can think of off the top of my head, so I like, uh, according to DC Database, apparently Vigilante is actually for Earth 2. Um, okay. That's what it says. The feature is Vigilante, which is the Greg Sanders of Earth 2. Hmm. I don't know. I wonder if there was ever an Earth 1 Vigilante then. I don't know. Or maybe it's just because it is Earth 2, just because of the fact that uh, it takes place when it does. Yeah. So maybe Vigilante has been relegated to Earth 2. Since he's not moderate enough, or I don't know, but anyway, apparently that it's a, it's also the fourth story in Action 191, and also the fourth story in Action 193. So, hmm. and then um, we have the Haunted Island, featuring Aquaman from Adventure Comics oh. 206, and I'm gonna let uh, I'm gonna let you go ahead and say what you have to say on it because you had a. <laughs> okay, this story. Now, now you gotta listen because it's 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 a very involved story. Okay. Aquaman helps kids play baseball and Un- basketball. Underwater. On the water. Oh. Aqu- Aquaman summons his finny friends and they play baseball on the water. And that that's and it. Pretty much. Yeah. There's <laughs> a. They they run into a couple criminals that just happen to be nearby, but the criminals don't really do anything but try to scare the kids and and yeah, that's about it. Wow, so, <laughs> it's a very hokey. I I told uh, I told Charlie before we started recording, it's got Mort Weisinger's fingerprints all over it. Oh yeah, if you're familiar with the Silver Age Superman, so. In fact, let me look at this for a story second. with no real villain and just you know. Yeah, and he was definitely uh, editing this, the whole book at that point, too. Yeah. Yep. Not bad. Too bad we didn't get the Johnny Quick story. But um, it's a, it is a six-page story, and I like this. The, um, the feature characters were Aquaman, two criminals, and a group of young boys, mm-hmm. is how it's listed here on Mike's Amazing World of DC. Uh, the villains are two criminals, first appearance, no further appearances, and other characters were a group of young boys. First appearance, no further appearances. <laughs> that's just kind of weird, but they went ahead and that's it, bothered. Yeah. yeah, they went ahead and bothered. Uh, the art's but, nice. The yeah. art was by Ramona Fraden, so that's and that's uh, 
Is that a girl? Yes. Now she, well, the only reason I ask is that it's kind of surprising considering this is um, not quite Golden Age, but she did a lot of the early Aquaman stories. Yes, she did. And, and later uh, some uh, Metamorpho. And Super Friends. And Super Friends, yes. And it just kind of amazed me that uh, they had a woman working in comics that early on. I know they had women that were like uh, did some of the coloring. Yeah. But the actual creative process that they didn't seem to have any back, especially back in those days, just because of the you know the whole way women were treated back then. Right. So it's just kind of amazing to me that they actually had her. For that long, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, I'm looking at her Wikipedia entry. It says that she started in 1950. So wow. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, because I don't have it in front of me. Uh, when they now this is supposed to be another uh, an Aquaman of Earth Two story, believe it or not. Uh, did they? Yeah. Uh, I guess there's some debate over the the line of where. The Earth 2 Aquaman ends and the Earth 1 Aquaman begins. Okay. And a, a lot of people, I think, consider the introduction of, uh, what was his name? Topo, the, the octopus. Uh, okay. Octopus sidekick. Okay. I think they consider, a lot of people consider that the beginning of okay. the uh, Earth 1 Aquaman, but that didn't happen until after this story. Okay, well, I do see that this is November 54 cover date, so that definitely would be before the official start to the Silver Age in most places. Yeah. Because that's definitely a couple years before uh, Barry Allen becomes Flash. So, um, just out of curiosity, um, Aquaman's gloves, were they colored yellow or green? Let me pull the issue real quick. Oh, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Because I know a lot of the Earth 2 ones, they they had them colored yellow, and once they got Silver Age, they went to green. Just wondering how they bothered to do it. They are green. They are green. Okay. Just just thought I'd check. But it sounds like a really kick-butt story. <laughs> yeah, it's something all right. Get to play basketball on the water. Nice. Uh-huh. Um, okay, well, after all that fun, um, we get another Superman story. And this one is Yay. not a reprint. Yay! This one's not a reprint. This is actually a brand new story called The Most Dangerous Bug in the World. And like just well, actually like all the other Superman's uh, new Superman stories of this month, the writer was Carrie Bates. The art was by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Uh, the editor again was Murray Boltonoff, and Superman was still created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster without any credit. And uh, the story begins. Uh, one day we have Clark uh, walking to work uh, for just a random thought that he needs to make a video of super feats to be locked away in a time capsule the next day which I'm sure will have nothing to do with the rest of the story, um, when a boy accidentally bumps into him. And uh, a little bit later, we, we learned that it wasn't an accident, but part of an experiment uh, to test a micro-bugging device. The boy, named Bobby, his grandfather, who actually created the micro-bug, and two men on hand for, a demonst- for this demonstration, listen as we hear Clark typing on a typewriter. Only he's actually typing at super speed because he needs to type up a story in less than a minute. So it sounds a little weird to them. Uh, but suddenly, Clark hears a telepathic alarm. And I have hears in quotes, but you can't see that because you can't see me air quoting in a podcast. Um, 
Uh, it's a telepathic alarm from an alien ship flying over Metropolis. Its controls are jammed, and if it hits anything solid, Earth is doomed. So real, doomed. Uh, so Clark switches to Superman real quick, uh, placing the Clark his Clark clothing, and which also includes that microbug, into his secret pouch in his cape. As he takes off the uh, what I call them the eavesdroppers, just to make it a little easier to identify so I don't have to say Bobby, his grandfather, and the two men every time. Uh, they hear the whoosh sound when Superman takes off. And eventually we see Superman catching up to the ship and sees that it's only about two feet long. And its occupants explain that they are from an antimatter universe. And if they touch anything in this universe, including Superman, the entire Earth could be destroyed. So Superman flies ahead, uses his heat vision to actually evaporate a section of a waterfall, turning it to steam, allowing them to pass through without actually touching the water. Then he drills through a mount through the mountain behind the waterfall. Uh, the eavesdroppers are now hearing the drilling noise and figure that with all those sounds, they must be listening to Superman. So for some reason, uh, the grandfather... Uh, asks Bobby who it was that he bugged, showing him a, a copy of the Daily Planet with a picture of Clark Kent on it. He says, is this the man you bugged? And Bobby says, yeah, that's him. And basically at that point, all of our eavesdroppers fi figure out that Superman is Clark Kent. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Superman, well, actually he knows this, but he doesn't know about them, Superman is now flying fast enough that his, black, th black, that his backwash allows him to direct the antimatter ship. So he asks where it was that they originally arrived from and directs them back to that same spot, sending it back through the rift to their universe. Now at that point, uh, Superman is able to actually starts noticing the high-frequency radio waves being transmitted from the bug, uh, which he was too busy to notice earlier with all the telepathic stuff going on. Uh, back in Clark's office, and he doesn't do anything about it. He just goes back to Clark's office and changes back to Clark. In his office, uh, he's soon met by Bobby, and who explains about the bug and apologizes for discovering his secret identity and promises that neither he nor the other gentleman will let out the secret. That night on the six o'clock news, Clark's plays a Clark's. Mm -hmm. That night on the six o'clock news cast, Clark plays a recording that Superman apparently has dropped off for the time capsule that basically shows all of the feats that he performed to help the spaceship. He mentions that he had previewed the tape earlier, which allows the eavesdroppers to figure out that they just heard him watching the tape, not actually performing the feats. So, now of course, this means that Clark isn't Superman. After the show, Clark reveals to us via Thought Balloon, once again, that he rigged up a camera and recorded himself re-performing the feats, and now the mayor gets his movie, and he gets to keep his secret. The end. And that was all told in six pages, which is pretty cool considering Yeah, that's a lot of stuff to fit in six pages. But they did a good, for what it's worth, for what the story is, they actually did a pretty good job Yeah, getting I really it in like six the pages. Story. It's a lot better than the first one, i, I got to admit. Um, but page one, oh, sorry? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, uh, page one, um, like I said, I wonder if this random mention of a video for a film might be have something to do with later, which obviously it does. It's, it's like the most random setup. It's yeah. like, uh, what's his name's gun? 
I can't think Chekhov's of it. Gun. Chekhov's gun. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's basically Chekhov's gun for the story. And it's because like, otherwise, why would Clark just be walking around? Hmm. I need to do a video for the mayor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sorry. You had you were going to say something. I, I was just going to say that um, this this kind of feels uh, it's just it's a fun kind of Silver Age-ish feel with Superman trying to keep his secret identity from being discovered without using super ventriloquism. <laughs> without using super ventriloquism, good point. <laughs> uh, I I really enjoyed this story better than I did the lead story. But yes, yes, it's a it's a little more fun, but it it, it lets Superman be Superman without being at a character at all. I thought. Right. Because he's he's just doing what he's supposed to do. Um, let's see. I think I have another note. Page three. Um, it's a good thing these guys are telepathic, because that would have made it a lot harder for Clark to explain the, <laughs> all the stuff if he had been talking as Superman the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I thought it was funny um, since it's not you know really PC to say it now, but he calls it a midget ship. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I thought that was funny. It's, it's like so what? Tiny. It's a midget yeah. ship. <laughs> uh, uh, did you have anything on page three? I really like the shirt rip and Superman soaring off. Yes, the shirt rip was was really cool. I like yeah. that a lot too. It's it's a different. It's not just him ripping open the shirt. I mean, you got the tie flying, and the shirt is excessively rip being ripped open. Right. The only thing you're missing is the buttons falling off. Really? Yeah. And they might be there. They might just not be able to see it because of the print quality from back there. That's it. Yeah, it's the super speed buttons. And we see a nice little shot of the cape pouch. And yeah, you hardly ever see that. It's one of the. It's one of those plot holes, or not plot holes, but it's one of those artistic things that you never get to see too much when it's when Superman's in action because it's hard to imagine that the the pouch would actually be there. Right. Because if you you know you would think stuff would fall out of there when he's stretching it around and. Things, but yeah. Anyway, now page five. Actually, there's something else. That actually, before that, I think. Um, now, when it, and I couldn't figure out how to put it in words on this from my notes, but I think it's I want to say it's page four when he's using his heat vision on that waterfall. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's not going to work that way. Probably um, not in space, no. Uh, well, it's not in space. They're still on Earth, but he's doing his heat vision on the waterfall. And oh, to cut through it, yeah. Yeah, and he's not going to be able to do that. It's just going to keep flowing. He would actually have to keep looking at the waterfall to hold. Like it's almost like hold, trying to hold, hold open a window, I yeah. guess. So, uh, and we don't see him doing that unless they're all unless they're both flying so fast. But there's no. He's using super ventriloquism. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he's using super ventriloquism to keep the water, you know, from touching them. Um, but on page five, uh, the backwash thing wouldn't work in space because there's no air. Yeah, good point. Uh, so uh, it's a good idea in theory, but it probably would – the physics of it just aren't there. That's just – I don't want to kill the fun part of the story, but eh. – Yeah. They still not um, talking to one another. Yeah, yes, exactly. And they could because they're telepathic, so they could think to each other. Well, they could think to him on it, yeah, but they couldn't actually speak, yes. you know. And uh, on the other hand, we never see uh, Bobby and his grandfather get that bug back. No. I just realized that. They never get the bug back, and uh, we never find out if those other two gentlemen give the grandfather the contract or not. Huh. Well, maybe they'll have to do that in the sequel. 
Yeah, that'll be that's that's the backup story when they come back to uh, what's going to happen to the president and uh, right whether Khan and Rhea are Riot, yeah. yeah are going to be okay. So yeah, a lot of a lot of loose ends in these stories. I know. That we're covering this issue. Good job, Carrie. <laughs> but um, that's really all I have to say on this. It's um, uh, we ne- uh, the only other couple things I had was it's a fun little story. Uh, the art looked really good, mm-hmm. and we never actually see Clark turn in that story. He was in a hurry to type up. <laughs> no, we don't, do we? Nope. <laughs> How about you? You got anything more to say on it? No, I think that's about it. I, okay. you know, I thought it was a fun story, too. So, yeah. Okay, there was um, one other book that we were going to kind of take a brief look at, and that was World's Finest Comics number 206. And this month's issue of World's Finest was all reprints from the Silver Age. Um, we're not going to talk about them talk about them in any length, right? Right. Okay. Just going to do a brief you know, thing I just over. Wrote it. out a brief synopsis of each story and uh, thought we'd run through that. The first story in the issue is the secret of the captive caveman. It was captive caveman. <laughs> it was Sorry. reprinted from <laughs> World's Finest Comics number one thirty eight, uh, which was cover dated December nineteen sixty three. And in that story, Superman, Batman, and Robin travel back in time 50,000 years to save Earth from an alien invasion. And if they look like in those in that issue, the way they look on the front cover, they looked pretty groovy with that long Beatles yeah, they, haircut and stuff. They had to go back in time, and they, uh, they glued, I want to say, animal fur or hair on their faces wow. to, to blend in with the other uh, cavemen. Was the, did he have the glue in his utility belt, I guess? They didn't say. That was one thing I, uh, <laughs> I saw the issue. They didn't say where they got the glue from. I mean, they, okay. they went to great length to point out that it, you know, they got the hair from animals, but they didn't <laughs> So, And they, they even point out in the story that since they are 50,000 years in the past, Batman and Robin can take their masks off because no one will recognize who they are. Oh. Which I thought was kind of neat. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the second story was The Creature That Was Exchanged for Superman. It was from World's Finest 118, June 1961. And in that story, Superman tries to find his way home after being transported to the planet Zeron, while Batman and Robin battle an iron ore-eating creature called the Scran uh, that was transported to Earth in Superman's place. <laughs> kind of goofy. Does the character look anything like he does on the cover? Yes. Big wow! Like a beak, yeah. Yeah, that looks like th- that little, that big hairy orange creature from the old uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Oh, it does. Except with you know Big Bird's beak. Uh huh. That's weird, and it looks like he's wearing Batman's utility belt. Um, let me. On the cover, I don't know what about inside the story, but. Yeah, I don't. I'll yeah, he does have a. It's not Batman's utility belt, but it is a belt of some sort. Okay. That sort of looks like that, so. It's got pouches. More modern day kind. Yeah, and a big old belt buckle on the front. Sweet. Uh, The third story was, if I can get back to my notes, Riddle of the Four Planets. Uh, A starfish-like creature known as a Zelophod appears outside of Gotham City, and Superman, Batman, and Robin must travel to four distant planets in order to find ingredients to create an antidote to defeat the creature. Uh Uh-huh. Probably the worst of the four stories. <laughs> Not that okay. any of them are that great, but the fourth story was the Mirror Batman. 
and that was reprinted from World's Finest number 121. And in that story, Batman falls into a strange mirror and returns with fantastic abilities and no memory, and it's up to Superman and Robin to aid their friend and get him back to normal. Interesting. Yeah. It looks weird and freaky on the cover. Yeah, the I think it was uh, Dick Sprang that did the art for that one. Oh, he's awesome. And, uh, he did. No, that was Jim Mooney. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, but he did. When Batman comes out of the mirror, he's got you know his big jaw and his limbs are all stretched out. Yes. That's... A little bit later, uh, Superman and Robin go into the mirror. Let's call it the mirror universe, and uh, they're all exaggerated and like a, like a funhouse mirror. Okay, say. that's so, cool. Are all of these from um, before Batman got the yellow oval? They're all from the, um, the 60s, so when did he get the oval? Uh, Mid-60s. Okay, uh, I think so. Oh, I guess it would be har- a little harder to tell in, a showca- in the showcase books. Yeah. <laughs> Good point, never mind. <laughs> I think the latest one is from 63, so... Yeah, okay. the, the latest one is the very first story, which was December '63. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because on the the they sh- only showed three of them on the cover, and he it it, it was the quote unquote pre new look, so I wasn't sure about the last day, that riddle of the four planets one. So, well, that sounds pretty cool. Um, thank you for covering that. Uh-huh. And um, that's right, people. Michael read those, so I didn't have to. And um. <laughs> Now we're going to go uh we'll go to elsewhere in the DC multiverse for August of 71 and we're going to follow along at dcindexes.com uh Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and um all these books were on sale in August of 71 uh starting off just from the top we have uh Forever People number 5 Sunny Sumo Yes interesting and it extra oh and in the as a backup feature the Sandman met the evil Carnival Gang, but um this is the first. Um, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Wasn't both of those dealing with the? Uh, I think that 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 Forever People story has the uh, Crime Circus or Circus of Crime or something in it. Let's see. Or maybe that's the New God story. Uh, I forget, but I thought that was interesting that they reprinted the Crime Carnival Sandman story. Interesting. Well, yeah, okay. it's right there on the cover of the Forever People. Yeah. Well, no, that's something else. Uh, anyway, I think that's the one with the Circus of Crime in it. Okay. Uh, but in any event, the um, apparently this is for the first time you get to see the anti-life equation in action. Cool. So that's got to be some. And this has a backup of the New Gods. I wonder if that means that the New Gods book had actually been canceled by this point. No, it's still going on. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it, there it is, number it was, five. Weird. It was only at issue number five, too, so... That's weird how they why they did that. But anyway, I guess it kind of makes sense since they're well, part of the new gods. Well, it's just a... Um, this backup feature is kind of like the uh, the Fabulous World of Krypton. It deals with a character that doesn't really get attention okay. in the New God series, because the New God series is mostly focused on Orion. Yeah, I've noticed so, that. It's not, yeah. really new, it's not really New Gods, it's Orion. Right. Uh, we have House of Secrets number 94, which has a really cool-looking cover on it. It looks... That's a Bernie Wrightson cover, but it I'll be darned if it doesn't look like almost like a photo. Are you there? Yes, I am. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I had you on mute there for a minute. Okay, no problem. Um, 
but did you see that cover from House of Secrets? Yes, it's a nice cover. It yeah. looks like a, almost looks like it could be a photo. Uh, we have Our Army at War with, uh, featuring Sergeant Rock, number 237. Uh, I thought this before. cover was nice, too, even though I'm not much of a, uh, a Qbert fan. Yeah, I'm not either. Probably but, uh, sacrilege to some fans, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a huge one either. He, he's he got some good stuff. I, his war stuff's not bad. He I, He's not my favorite when it comes to the actual superheroes. Right. But I like his war stuff, and... Um, this is an interesting looking cover with the uh, blood bag on the on the rifle barrel. Under the rifle, yeah, that's really cool. Um, we have All Star Western number eight, um, which is a Tony D. Zanuga cover, and it's just a Western story. Yay! Uh, hey. Let's see, we have Binky number eighty one, which is the Archie you want to be, and uh, let's see, what does it say? And the there's an article. Who's that in the upper right corner? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. J.C. Phillips, he put it together. It came out something, something. I Let me see if this is on the comics database, because okay. that's not... Oh, here we go. Oh, there's only 11 issues of that book. It was originally called Leave It to Binky. Oh, okay. They changed it to Binky, and it only ran for you know, 11, 11 issues. issues. Okay, I got you. Oh, look at you. Okay, J.C. Phillips, he put it together. It came out sweet pain. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's uh, a weird. Yeah, uh, but that's a. Uh, so is that him in the upper corner with the really bad haircut? Or? I would imagine. Yeah. Wow. But it's the early '70s, so it's actually a modern haircut. Okay. Yeah. We have Brave and the Bold number 98, featuring uh, Batman and the Phantom Stranger. Yay. With a really cool, looks like Neil Cardi trying to be Neil Adams cover. Mm-hmm. I actually like that one. Uh, we have The Witching Hour, number 17, with another Nick Cardi trying to be Neil Adams' cover. Although it doesn't really look like Nick Cardi. It does look like Neil Adams, so I don't know. Um, some of the, some of the uh, like, I really like the look of some of these scary books. Just yeah, the way... the covers. Yeah, the way they're able to do stuff on the... I'm sure the inside doesn't look as good, but the covers look really cool. Uh, GI Combat, number 150 which involves death of the haunted tank. I thought the haunted tank was already dead. Yeah, I know, because he's haunted, but anyway. Uh, we have Girls Love Stories number 162, which asks the burning question, are you afraid to love? Yes. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> and of course, I had to find out which girl am I, so that's really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have New Gods number 5, which has three stories. Um, wow, that... Not, not to go back... that. Which Girl on My Story was by Gene Cullen and Dick Giordano. So Really? Yeah. I mean, that, the, those romance stories may be goofy, but they've got some nice art on them, some of them. Didn't have a writer, though, but... And yeah. apparently it was called The Day I... It was originally called The Day I Looked Like This. Okay. And the artwork had been partial... Oh, okay. Okay, I see what they did. It was reprinted from Young Love Number 52, and they actually did some re- a partial redrawing to update the hairstyles. Oh, okay. Uh, because apparently Young Love 52 came out in 65, and so it didn't. And it, yeah. Anyway, so it's not a it, it's not a it's not a perfect reprint. It's a right. touched up reprint. Mm-hmm. Um, but the New Gods, we have a, a very classic Kirby cover uh, with two be- super beings locked in battle, and one must die. Dun, dun, dun. That was the um, Deep Six. 
Yes. Zero column? Yes. Okay. And we've got um, see the mutant see the mutant monster unleashed on the something of Earth. I really they really need to make bigger covers on this. Uh, but it says to read Spawn, which to my um, I don't believe that comes out for another 20 years or so. So no, that's, that's pretty very, cool. Uh, <laughs> that's nice of Kirby. That's that's called foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's the Sinister House of Love number one, so that what? we haven't seen that before. The Sinister House of Secret Love. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the word secret. But um, it's got a really cool cover that apparently is looks like it's partially photo, partially art. I've never heard of Victor Kalin before, but he does some pretty good art. Unless it's all a photograph, but it looks pretty cool. I have never cool. heard of this title. I have never heard of it either. I don't know how far Did it goes. Did they try to take a romance title and a, a horror title and mash them together? Or? It looks like it. Wow. Wow. And it's a bi-monthly book, too. Okay, apparently it changed its name after issue four to just Secrets of Sinister House, which I have heard of that. Okay. But I didn't know it started out as Secret House of or Sinister House of Secret Love. Well, now you know, and knowing mm-hmm. is half, half the battle. The battle. Yes. Yeah. And the other half is red lasers and blue lasers. <laughs> if you've ever seen that T-shirt. Oh yeah, yeah. It's the one thing I actually got. My wife actually remembers that one, so that's the one geeky thing she can say. Yeah. When she's not talking about SpongeBob. Um, Next one is Young Romance number 175, featuring 15 ways to get over a broken heart. And also, um, Are You Loving Your Boyfriend? Read Do's and Don'ts of Dating. And See Love from a Man's View. Or The Man's View. So this is how the man views love. All the all the romance stories are written by men, so there you go. Yeah, but see, they're edited by a woman, mm-hmm. Dorothy Woolfolk. So... Uh, anyway, uh, House of Mystery 195, which has another cool uh, Bernie Wrightson cover. It almost looks like Man Bat. Uh, but I, I actually know it doesn't because that looks like a giant bat attacking a person. Never mind. Yeah, because his head's down. Yeah. Uh, then we have Star Spangled War Stories, number 159, featuring the Unknown Soldier. That's a really cool look of his face. I like mm-hmm. that. And we have uh, my favorite... Sugar and Spike, number 98. Uh, and what's really cool is they get so many stories in these funny books. Yeah. Uh, well, they're only ten pages. So yeah, they're, pages. they're short. They can be short little stories, but you're getting a lot of. You're pretty much getting a lot of bang for your quarter. Um, but they've been doing the 25 cent thing even longer than, longer than most of the others. Yeah. But um, this one. <clears throat> Actually, has a contest to write your own comic page and win ten dollars. Wow, ten dollars, huh? Yeah, that's better than your uh, back in the golden age. You know, you could win tw- uh, a whole dollar cash prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Jimmy Olsen number one forty-two, featuring the man from Transylvania. I know, and it's it's actually an uh, an interesting story. Make sure you go to uh, SupermanHomepage.com. And uh, if you go to the classic pre uh, the pre crisis mild mannered reviews, um, some nut job named Charlie has reviewed all of the Jack Kirby issues of Jimmy Olsen. So if you want to hear more about it, I would check it out there. Does it uh, look like to you that the vampire's wearing lipstick? Yes, totally. Okay. Uh, and also, he's not, not just me. He's not colored like that in the issue. It looks like a possessed Joker. 
kind of. Um, but he doesn't. I've, I've got these issues in the, the hardcovers, but I, it's yeah, been so long since if, I read them. That... I don't know about when they re, when they reprinted them, but in the original printing, you, he's not colored white like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe he's got the lipstick. Mm-hmm. It's all just the uh, the flesh color. But um, it's it, it's actually a pretty cool story. I I recommend it. Of course, we have the nice Murphy Anderson head on Superman. But... Uh, yeah. Actually, that's Neil Adams. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, he did some too. He yeah. did the. He was. Uh, he's credited as being the inker. Okay. So I think I don't know about probably Jimmy's head too, but. I know after a while Neil was wanting to at least get uh, was trying to get on more of the covers for this just because uh, it was starting to upset Kirby with all the changes they were having to make. Yeah, well, so yeah, so he was coming in to try to leave as much Kirby as he could in there and still kind of give it a Adams-ish Kirby-ish face, uh, which is kind of weird because actually for like two or three issues before he leaves, um, Kirby, uh, the inker doesn't they don't actually get. Or Anderson to come in and do the heads, so you basically see Kirby's Superman, and they let it oh, go. Okay. It's really weird. Um, anyway, uh, moving right along, we have from Beyond the Unknown number thirteen, which is another forty-eight page book. Well, obviously they all are actually at this point, um, which is pretty cool. All the books at this point they're a quarter, but they're all forty-eight pages. But um, I believe this is another book that's all reprints. Uh, in fact, including yes, Virginia, there is a Martian. <laughs> but um, so those are cool. We have Heartthrobs number 134, which has a guy on the cover. Looks like he's really trying to fill up that girl. Yeah. Wow. He's he's holding her up. And um, the stars predict your love calendar. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you get, you get sw- swinging singles. And they called me too easy to love. Wonder what that's about. And uh, <laughs> the man I loved was a woman hater. So that's yeah, uh, uh, fun stuff. And then we have a giant issue of Justice League of America number ninety-three, which is sixty-four pages. And instead of being a quarter, that's now thirty-five cents. And um, in all say, reprints, it's there. It's two large, I guess, reprint stories. Mm-hmm. From very, are they both really classics? They're pretty classic. They're both in Those, teens issues. Oh yeah. Uh, so you've got in, yeah. So you've got the Riddle of the Robot Justice League and Journey into the Micro World. So all of these are from really early in the run of the Justice mm-hmm. League. So that was interesting. We have Superboy number one seventy eight, which basically has Superboy turning into a boy bat. I guess you would call it. And there's an extra story involving Super Baby's first friend. Aww. And, of course, Legion of Superheroes, the Lone Wolf Legionnaire, which I'm wondering if that has anything to do with Timberwolf. Was he even around at that point? Yeah, that's that's his first appearance. Uh Ah, okay. Yep, it says it right there. Origin revealed, first appearance. from... 1960. Oh, okay. To reprint. Yeah. Well, that stinks. I thought they were doing new ones by this point. We have uh, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, number 115. And uh, this one, again, we have some weird uh, weird script used on the word bubble. But um, basically, it's Lo- uh, Lois is writing about her death, or something to that effect. Nice typewriter. And uh, we have Unexpected, number 128, 
where, the, where there's more than one way to get framed. And uh, I can't make this stuff up, people. That's actually what it says. So, uh, yeah. Uh, we have Adventure Comics number 411 with uh, Supergirl. And she actually, the costume's looking, starting to look a little closer to what it would look like later on in the Bronze Age. Um, she's still wearing like some Daisy Duke shorts, but she's got that blouse that she would later wear. Uh, with the with the big poofy sleeves mm-hmm. and the S symbol on her, uh, yeah, and uh, but instead of boots, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's gonna say on her right or her left, yeah, part of her chest, and uh, she's got these little Robin booties. But um, we've got Detective Comics number four sixteen, which has Man Bat Madness. Plus three more mystery filler, uh, thrillers, which has a Batgirl story, which is more than likely new. Rex the Wonder Dog, which I'm going to say is probably a Golden Age reprint, and it is. Then we got Girls Romances, number 160, uh, featuring what to do if you've lost your man. What to do if you've lost your man. And I really want to know that, because I'm afraid one of these you days I might lose, lose my man. man. Are you? Yeah. Um... And let's see, what else we have? Uh, and then finally, we have Green Lantern number 86, uh, which is one of the drug issues that they talked about. Um, yeah, that was the second part of the... Yeah, I was uh, going to say, that was probably the second part, right? Something. Yeah, this is uh, the issue after Green Arrow has discovered that Speedy is a druggie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this would probably be the issue where he's trying to get past all the uh, withdrawals, right? Yes. Yes, with Black I've, Canary. I've never actually read those two stories, okay. but I know, I, you know, I've yeah. read, read about them. So it's. I want to say this is probably, yeah, this has got Black Canary in it. So I'm guessing this is that story. That the I think the next story was a Green Arrow kicks him out for being a druggie, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. So he goes exactly. to uh, Black Canary's place and he just fights it and does the withdrawals and stuff. And they really show it being difficult, and she just lets him go and helps him through it and stuff. It's pretty cool. But anyway, that's pretty much it um, for this month. I want to make sure you uh, go to Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network. You can find my show at Superman Blogspot. uh, No, that's not it at all. At supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And, Michael, you want to tell them where they can find yours? You can find my show at the Superman Podcast Network, but the uh, the home base is www.greatcrypton.com. And uh, I want to thank you again, Michael, for coming on the show. Uh, it's oh, been no. awesome you having, having you. This has been this has been a blast. So yeah, this has been pretty. It, uh, we had some tefic, de, mm-hmm, technical difficulties at the beginning, and this has been going on for about hmm, about three hours now. <laughs> but um, you probably won't notice most, that if you're listening to it. at this point, I think. But. Yeah, no, it's thank been you. A lot of fun, yes, thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. Thank you for coming on. And uh, again, uh, I'd love to have you back anytime. And if anyone else out there uh, wants to uh, join in the fun, uh, just feel free to email me at umbc81 at gmail.com and we'll get you on the show. And uh, thank you again, Michael, and you all have a good day. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com, 
or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.